No need to panic here. Take what the defense is giving you. And no need to sit back, Peyton, with the hurry-up offense. Once again, play fake. Quick throw, Thomas. He's got a couple of blockers, and Thomas is off of the races. Here we go, 45 midfield. Thomas, 40. Foot race down the east sideline. 20, 15, 10, 5. Demarius Thomas, once again, has beaten the Steelers on a huge play. Seven. What is up, sports fans? It is September 11th, 2012, episode number 33 of the second season of the Sports Casters podcast. My name is Steve Bennett, co-host Don Russ, and we just wanted to take a second to pay our respects and honor the victims of September 11th, 2001, which I know I... Don, I can't believe it's been 11, 11 years, years. Yeah, already, but before we started this podcast and started talking about sports, we just wanted to thank the men and women who go out there day after day and defend our right to sit in this room and be able to talk about something that can, in the grand scheme of things, be as trivial as sports. So we want to thank the troops. We want to thank everyone who worked in New York City to clean up that mess and turn a negative into what is now a beautiful positive down there. And uh want to thank athletes like Pat Tillman who gave up their career yeah. in sports to uh, to go out there and, and defend our freedom. So God bless America. And uh, I guess from there we go on. Welcome yeah, right on. again to uh, season – to episode 33 of the Sportscasters. We've got a great show for you today. Pablo S. Torre, our buddy, good buddy Pablo, who we usually talk Jeremy Lin with, was <laughs> in New Orleans this week and will give us a firsthand recap of what was one of the biggest stories, I think, of opening week of the NFL season, and that was the amazing play of Robert Griffin III in a place that is really difficult to play. The Superdome met. Matt Stafford will tell you that he made his debut there just a couple seasons ago, and he had a nightmare of yeah. a day. Uh, so what Robert Griffin III did in New Orleans on Sunday, I think, shouldn't go unnoticed or underrated at all or lost in what was a ton of different, really, angles you could focus on after a great first week of the NFL, and we're going to do that in three things. But Pablo will join us to talk about Robert Griffin III, We'll find out what was wrong with the Saints. And also he's going to fill us in a little bit on a breaking Harvard story that involves the basketball team and the football team and some cheating on a test, which you know Harvard does not take lightly. No. Cheating and tests, not their thing. So Luke Wynn, our buddy, has been kind of breaking that story the last couple of days if you follow Luke on Twitter. 
and Pablo has been assisting him, and we'll talk to Pablo about those things. Also on the show, talk about a guy with kind of nine lives. Dan Wolken is a good buddy of ours who we met because he, about a year ago, was debuting as the national columnist in a made-for-the-iPad newspaper okay, right. yep. called The Daily. Right. Well, just a couple months ago, The Daily pulled the rug out from underneath the sports department. The Daily is owned by Rupert Murdoch, who obviously owns Fox. Right. So what he did was fired the whole sports department to save money and then is just using the content from foxsports.com in The Daily. Oh, that's dirty. So Dan Wilkin ended up out and on the street, but only for a minute. He bounced back, and he's now covering college football for USA Today, a yeah. made-for-print newspaper, right? and for their website. So we're going to talk about the transition from being a national columnist to focusing on one thing, college football. And uh, obviously, we're going to talk about college football with Dan Wolken. And the third guest today is a local guy here in Buffalo named Mike Shope, who you might know on a national scale from he spent some time at ESPN Radio, uh, mostly on the weekends, doing some shows on ESPN Radio. Really talented and smart guy who does the afternoon drive show in Buffalo, New York. And we're going to talk to him about a bunch of different things. Um, the Bills, we'll get his opinion on the Bills and that disaster. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get Don's opinion on that as well. And we're also going to talk to him about you know, just kind of doing the afternoon drive radio show in a sports crazy city like Buffalo, but yet still kind of a smaller market. Talk um, shop a little bit. Yeah, we'll talk shop a little bit and kind of get into the sportscasters part of the sportscasters with Mike. Right. Uh, also, we're going to update the book club. It's a huge update there. Uh, we got all kinds of things to do on Five on Fantasy, and we're going to end the show with pick four. I wanted to mention also, really exciting, our Football Nation show this week. We have Don Banks from Sports Illustrated, who I would say, in terms of football coverage, is probably the number two guy at SI. You probably got Peter, Peter King, King. Yeah. and then you got Don Banks. And a lot of Don's work is on the website. Uh, so maybe he flies under the radar a little bit. But he's going to be on our Football Nation show. Kenny Albert was on last week. Still time to check it out. Don't forget about our Football Nation podcast, which you can find at www.footballnation.com. Don't forget about our website, www.sports-casters.com, and following us on Twitter at sports underscore caster. Don, we got to get better at just throwing stuff like that out. Yes. Uh, We've episode, been saying that for two We have been saying now. that for two years, <laughs> yes. Episode 32 of the show featured Chris Ballard, uh, Tommy Tomlinson, and Adam... Lazarus, and you can still find that on our website as well. All right, so we got a lot to do today. Let's get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> All right, the first thing this week we're going to get to is 
the NFL week that was. Uh, we'll probably end up, we'll probably end up doing this most weeks unless there's a bigger story like baseball playoffs or something like that. But right. week one of the NFL is not much bigger than that. Boy, there's a lot of storylines to cover. Uh, first of all, just the scoring in general. If you're a fantasy player out there, you, you maybe lost some games with some really high scores. The NFL. I'm not sure what the overall average was, but I heard on the Monday night, the first Monday night game, the overall average was something over 45. Maybe the San Diego-Oakland game brought that down a bit because their game was only 36 points. But tons and tons of high-scoring affairs. Uh, the first game was awesome. I mean, it started right yeah. away with that, what I thought was a really good opening night game, uh, kind of a back-and-forth battle between Romo and Manning. Uh, for the first time in nine tries, the home team goes down. On banner night, on that Thursday That's night right, yeah. slash Wednesday night game. So kudos to the Cowboys on that. And I thought it got the week off to a great start. The bat, the great thing about it being on Wednesday was that it was on Wednesday, so we got it earlier. The worst thing was then waiting till Sunday, yeah, that extra forever. day. But I don't know. I thought there were some really interesting things on Sunday. Obviously, we're going to talk more with uh, Tori about Robert Griffin, how good he looked in the Superdome and the Redskins upset yeah, win. A lot of teams losing in their own building. You talked about the Wednesday yeah. game. The Giants lost in their home building. Kansas City lost in their building. Not that Kansas City is any world beater, right. but Browns people expected lost. them to be better. Uh, Browns the Saints, lost. Titans. The Saints lost, and I mean that's a place they're notorious. I mean they're, that's a tough place to Nine play. Nine and zero last year. Green Bay lost in Lambeau. Yep. So uh, a lot of teams right after Week One that might be a little bit in. in Maybe not panic mode, but just have to kind of check themselves because they're losing games that maybe they shouldn't. Five rookie quarterbacks started their first NFL game on Sunday. Only one won. That was Robert Griffin. Uh, Andrew Luck had 309 yards passing. Griffin had 320. They're now the second and third highest all-time debut yards thrown behind Newton's 400-plus last year. Uh, So... You know, Luck did get it, like I said, the 300 yards and a and a touchdown. But he also threw, I think, three or four interceptions against yeah, the Bears. Yeah. So some learning uh, curve there. Michael Vick was horrible. The against Eagles the were Browns, horrible. Yeah, yeah. And the Browns should have won that game. Michael Vick threw a pick in the end zone on that last drive that one of the Browns just dropped. And the Browns are going to be, I think, really bad this year. The suspension. Uh, Joe Harden. Joe, yeah, that has been reinstated yeah. i guess so he's out starting immediately a lot of this stuff will end up going over again probably in five on fantasy because obviously it's fantasy stuff that overlaps Whedon but, uh, was no good uh 12 of 35 118 yards no touchdowns four picks and he got caught under the flag the giant flag did you see <laughs> i that? did see that yeah so that was not a good 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 sign and he doesn't have a lot of time he turns 29 next week yeah i mean he needs he doesn't have a lot of time to learn on the field uh, one they're of the, developing a guy that's almost as old as I am. Matthew Stafford kind of looked like he was playing his first NFL game. He was really shaky against the Rams. He threw, they should have lost that game, They should have lost. They, he threw three picks in the first half. And we were talking off the air about what an amazing finish to the Jacksonville and Minnesota game. Yeah, he missed it. What you, that, that was a Fox game, right? No, that was a CBS game because the Vikings were the home team. So the okay, Jaguars right, right, right. The visitors, right. Uh, I think they flipped to that game after after the Bills the local lost. game, right? Boy, that I'm not sure which broadcast team that was, but I imagine whoever it was is pretty low on a totem pole. Mm-hmm. That turned out to be maybe the best game of the 
Yeah, if you missed, finish if you missed it, so with 20 seconds left on the clock, Blaine Gabbert, who or Blaine Gabbert, who has been killed as not good enough and the worst Dinkin of the rookie guy. quarterbacks last year. John Gruden is nice to everybody. Called him out last year. Yep. Uh, he threw a 39-yard touchdown pass to Cecil Shorts with 20 seconds left in the game. Jaguars went for two, got it. 23-20 lead with 20 seconds left. Should be game over. Should be game over. The Vikings ran two offensive plays and after, got themselves. After a touchback, I believe. Right. So they so got to go had, 80 yards in 20 seconds. Right. Two plays, they got themselves in position for Blair Walsh, who's their kicker, to try a 55-yarder to tie it, and he bombed it. Yep. And then we got to see the new overtime rules play out because Minnesota got the ball first, managed only a field goal, took a 26-23 lead, and Jacksonville got the ball back and went four and out, including a horrible decision to throw the ball about 40 yards down the field to nobody on fourth and three, instead of trying to get three yards and extend the game. Yeah, I know. I know in a situation like that, maybe you don't always want to do exactly what the other team expects and some short pass. But that was not a high percentage play by, no, not by at any all. means. They didn't catch any. There was more uh, Vikings in the picture when that ball was landed than there were Jags. It kind of looked like one of those plays where you drew the other team off sides. And you have a free play, so you just kind of chuck it down the field. And, (laughs) you know, it just didn't look like they were ever going to complete it. Definitely did not. Uh, MJD and Adrian Peterson, holy cow. uh, I take back everything I said in five on fantasy last week. I guess we didn't need to wait to see how you guys are going to do. Yeah. And now Rashad Jennings looks like he's banged up. Not sure if he's going to play. Yeah, his time as a starter. I'm not sure it matters anyway. MJD took that game over. And you got to tip your hat to Adrian Peterson. Everyone knows I'm a fan, so I'm not going to try to get too poetic here. But he tore his ACL on Christmas. He had his surgery on New Year's Eve, and he scored two touchdowns and averaged almost five yards a carry opening day in September. That's just unbelievable to me. It's a freaking nature. He'll be the number one overall pick again next year, I imagine, as that, long as he stays that's, healthy. That's supposed to be a one-calendar year injury. Right. Uh, who impre- Falcons were impressive. Yep. 49ers were very impressive going into Green Bay. And New England looks like New did. England. New England looks like New England. They looked very good. Tom Brady got his poor nose roughed up. Arizona, for a team that looked like a disaster in preseason and kind of looked like I mean, they lost their quarterback in this game, still managed to win. I think that probably says more about Seattle maybe not being. And I would have, you know, that reminds good. me of one more thing I wanted to bring up. The referees, I want to say a couple things about them. One, they did a great job when everyone was watching on Wednesday. <laughs> I thought they really did. I thought they, yeah. they called a great game. And it, 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 But I, I feel like these guys throw too many flags. I do feel like there's more penalties called. There was 12 penalties accepted against the Saints and 12 penalties accepted against the Redskins in that game. That's 24 penalties. That said, I will say that... Anything close, they throw the flag. Yeah, I don't think necessarily I'm left questioning anything the refs did anymore than I would be. Except for the four timeouts in the Seahawks and Cardinals Right, and uh, Mike... Pereira said that that, right. that was wrong. Right. So, I mean, that's the one glaring thing. Luckily, they got bailed out because the Seahawks had, I think, six cracks inside the Arizona 10 in the last minute and couldn't put it in the end zone. Right. So, they get, kind of get away with giving four timeouts to the Seahawks. 
Yep, and I'm not sure if you have anything else, but no, I think that's lastly, uh, congratulations to David Akers, who I don't oh, think we mentioned yet, but kicked a, a record-tying 63-yard field goal in the Green Bay game. Right at the half. Right at the half, bounced off the upright and threw. Uh, it's good and, for him. And you know what's cool about that record is, so Tom Dempsey broke – is the first one to have the 63-yarder for the Saints and overtime against the Lions. He had a half a foot, and some people said he had a little bit of an advantage because of the way his shoe was set up. Right, right, right. Okay, Jason Elam was the next guy, and he did it in Denver. And some people have said, well, it's a little easier because of the mile high and the thin air. But I would counter, still only been one guy who's ever kicked the 63. It's not like there are a dime a dozen up there. But Akers did it. Under none of those circumstances. Able-bodied, regular. In Green Bay, on grass. Latitude, on grass, outside, no yeah. roof. It was a bomb. It was awesome. It was awesome to see. I happened to see it. It was very cool. Yeah, I was watching it too. So, very cool. Great well, opening day. Yeah, absolutely. On to my second thing this week. A uh, little bit of sad news. Art Mordell dies at 87 years old. I know Cleveland fans don't hold him in the highest regard, but... There's a lot of things. I mean, he's probably, not probably, he's definitely done more good than bad. And it's interesting. Here in Buffalo, we have an aging, actually a guy that's older than him, I believe. Yeah, he's in his 90s. Ralph Wilson, who Ralph Wilson's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, really for not doing a ton. He, He helped bring the AFL and NFL together. But beyond that, most of his accomplishments are just involve keeping a team here. But, I mean, he did so well, earning himself tons and tons of money. And maybe the four Super Bowl trips. And Well, right, yeah, he, during the owner during that era, right. Art Modell, not in the Hall of Fame. However, probably just because of the move. Because probably, he moved yep. the team. Actually, in Cleveland, they were going to do like a moment of silence or something for him. And but the, the family, family asked, asked not, not to because they, weren't, they didn't want any rude fans or whatever to jeer at him. And there would have been some. Sure. Yep. Uh, so like I said, that's what he's best known for. But there's a lot of stuff out there that you probably don't know he was instrumental in. Like he created the first CBA along with Vince Lombardi. He negotiated the team's first, uh, the league's first TV contract. So, I mean, there's nothing bigger than the NFL on TV, and he, he got the ball rolling on that. And one thing that I did not know about that I found out in researching it today, he moved the Browns to the AFC in order to make the merger possible, which some people probably would have taken as an insult because when the NFL and AFL merged, the NFL was the big bad league right. and the AFL was kind of the, the little stepchild league. So to move your team willingly to the lousy league or whatever to make a merger possible, I mean, that really shows some foresight and uh, a little bit of self-sacrifice there. So uh, it's Art Modell, his family, the Ravens. And did you and mention Monday Night Football? Because he did have a hand in, he, in right, right. as well. No, I didn't mention it. But, yeah, I mean, he he was uh, definitely a visionary as far as the NFL went and very instrumental in bringing a lot of the stuff that we see today into the into the league. So, yeah, Art Modell, uh, rest, rest in, in peace. peace. Fun, yeah. All right, my second thing is, is kind of interestingly similar in a way because a lot of people overlook, you know, a lot of people are really hard on Art Modell for the move. But one thing that... He kind of helped orchestrate during the process was making sure that the name Cleveland Browns and the colors and the history of the team stayed in Cleveland. Yeah. And I bring that up because my number two thing today is based around an announcement made in Seattle today. 
that the plans to build a $490 million arena uh, with the thought of it bringing a team back to Seattle for the NBA was approved today. Um, There's a really rich hedge fund manager whose name is Chris Hansen, and he's not the guy who's gets the guys <laughs> on NBC to catch a predator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not that Chris Hansen. Um, a, a hedge fund, hedge fund uh, manager from San Francisco uh, has agreed to kick in more money for transportation improvements and personally guaranteeing the city's debt and offering to buy everyone a beer, which is kind of funny. Uh, a $490 million arena. It could host an, an NHL team as well. Uh, Supersonics had a 40-year... 41-year run in Seattle and in 2008 when they moved to Oklahoma City. And I thought this was really cool for us, Don, because you know if they build a $490 million arena in Seattle, Pearl Jam's going to have to play like two or three nights in a row there. And maybe we can uh, thumb our way down there or something and um, check out some shows. Yeah, Jeff Ament of Pearl Jam, the bass player, was real big into saving the Supersonics. Yes, he was. He's got to be pumped about this news. Yeah, so I think that as far as I know, if there was a team there, again, they would be the Seattle Supersonics. So good, good for them. Good for Seattle, and hopefully everything works out. Now, this plan of building an arena and hoping they come doesn't always work. Ask Kansas City, right? Oh, they right. have a beautiful new arena that's been standing with the hopes of moving an NHL team, team there right, for a yeah. long time, and that hasn't worked out. So I don't want to be negative because I have no reason to be negative. I have no idea whether or not a team will come or not, but I know this is a step in the right direction because a team wasn't going to move there to play in Key Arena. So, congratulations to Seattle and Seattle basketball fans. My last thing this week, uh, kind of an ongoing story we've been covering here. Uh, The Strasburg shutdown is official. It's done. And it comes about a week early. He was supposed to pitch on the 12th, which is tomorrow. And his coach or manager has cited that uh, between the physical... Uh, counts that they had him on and more so even now is the mental pressure and stress from the media around this they decided to shut him down early so wow i mean i guess they they, they stick stuck to their with guns yep, yeah and they're gonna they shut him down and now time will tell what happens if they if they fall short of a world series and people are gonna question pitching them is to blame especially in baseball uh, with the short series in the beginning, right? You can pitch two, three games. I mean, your pitcher can win a series for you in baseball, and to shut down your ace when your team is better than ever is is crazy. But we'll see. Maybe in the long run they'll be right. Uh, time will only tell. Yeah, you mentioned the only other thing too is if he comes out and gets injured next year, right? Yeah, fell short this year. A lot of people are gonna question. What was well, why do we go what, through yeah, this? What was the point? And injuries can happen anytime. And it might have nothing to do with anything, but people are going point, to point to this always. They've said all along they're going to revolutionize the way guys come back from that uh, Tommy John surgery. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. All right. My last thing and the last thing for today is it is September 11th. We mentioned that before. The deadline for the NHL and the collective bargaining agreement that's in place is September 15th. So by our next show... 
we should know if there's going to be a lockout in the National Hockey League. And my instincts and guts and everything I've read tell me there probably yeah, will be. Most likely. There was a story the last couple of days about how it might be potentially illegal to lock people out in the province of Quebec. But I've heard that the owner's answer to that is they'll, they have no problem paying the Canadians players if ordered to do so. It won't change okay. their plans on a lockout. If the labor board in Quebec says that the lockout is illegal, the league has said, well, then we'll just pay the Canadians players. So score for them. <laughs> I guess. Yes, yeah. It's a good time to be a Canadian player, a Montreal Canadian player. Uh, but that's not going to make a difference, I don't think. And I honestly think that the NHL, is kind of, the owners specifically, are looking at what happened with basketball last year and saying, we can have a shortened season, put some pressure on the players, get some of the con- concessions that we want, come back right around Thanksgiving time, not have to lose the Winter Classic, not have to lose right. the 24-7 show on HBO. Our league is so much about playoffs anyway. Everything's going to be fine. We'll save some money. Our costs will be down for a year. I just don't see why they wouldn't do it at this point. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see them coming to an agreement anytime soon either. They can't do it for a year again. No. If they get into that, they're going to ruin the league. So they're rolling the dice. But I think they think that they can get away with doing it till around Thanksgiving. Part of the reason the league, I think, has, I don't know if thrived is the word, but has is, is improved since the last lockout is they really did some revolutionary changes between the shootout and the four-on-four overtime and the crackdown and obstruction. And the partnership with Versus, which is now the NBC Sports Network. Right, so all that stuff was was these changes for the NHL. If they lock out again, what are they? What changes are they going to implement that are going to make people come back? Or, it's all money this time. Yeah, and that's that doesn't inspire fans. After the last lockout, I felt like okay, uh, that we lost a season that sucks. It's the worst thing that can happen to a sports fan. But get it right, you know what I mean. And it felt like they got it right. And here we are, what six years later, and we're in the exact same spot. And you've got owners—I don't know the owner's name off the top of my head—but you've got owners like the owners of the Minnesota Wild, <laughs> crying poor while signing two guys to hundred million dollar long term contracts that kind of circumvent the cap. And I think and that's, almost basically coming out and saying, "Save me from myself." Yeah, absolutely. You know, he didn't say that, but I mean, to paraphrase him, I mean, I don't know what you'd want to see come out of the lockout. That would be my biggest thing: is these these contracts and I don't know how you make it fair. Like, okay, nobody else can do this anymore, but all the teams that already have done it, like what do you do? But like, well, I think that's why you've seen the Oilers kind of rush to get some of their younger players signed yeah. in the last couple of weeks. Tyler Sagan was just signed. You know, I Bruins. think things are going to change about how long-term contracts are issued. Yep. So just fix it. I mean, if you're going to do it, do it right. Don't lose more than 10, 20 games. And uh, I'll still be there for you. Same. All right. That's going to do it for three things today. Uh, we're going to take a break, come back with Pablo Estori, find out what happened with RG3 and the Saints. Come back, do five on fantasy. We're going to talk some college football with Dan Wolken. And we're going to update the book club. we got a ton of stuff to talk about in that. Then we're going to inter- interview Mike Shope from WGR in Buffalo. And then we're going to close things out with pick four. So let's take a break now, and we'll be right back with Pablo Estori from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com.
All right, our first guest today is from New York City, New York, and is a graduate of Harvard University. At Harvard, he was the executive director of the only breakfast table daily in Cambridge, the Harvard Crimson. And as far as I know, he never cheated on a test or organized any kind <laughs> of uh, test cheating scandals there. In 2007, he was honored for his work by the Associated College Press and the American Society of Newspaper Editors for writing the Sports Story of the Year. After college, he was hired by Sports Illustrated to be a writer and reporter for the magazine and SI.com. In 2010, he won two Boxing Writers Association of America Awards for feature writing. He's making his fourth appearance on the Sportscasters today. We're not going to talk about Jeremy Lin. A warm welcome to the ultra-talented Pablo Astore. What's up, Pablo? Thank you, sir. Yeah, what I was doing in college was far more insidious than any common uh, academic <laughs> scandal, believe me. Yeah, you never waste your time with that kind of... <laughs> Miniature stuff. So you worried for your, your alma mater at all? Is that basketball team looks like they might get the brunt of it here? You got to be worried. I mean, yeah. this is serious stuff. I mean, I've been working with Luke Wynn, who broke the story late last night on this. And yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is that there's no excuse for getting caught up in this. I mean, the context is 125 kids are involved in this. It's not a sports-specific thing. But there right. could be a lot of athletes who are mixed up in it. And and anybody who's silly enough to plagiarize or do whatever ended up happening on an open book final, I mean that's 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 max of, of arrogance and and that's just you know, it's inexcusable in any context. Now I think I read on Luke's feed there's some potential football players involved, but as far as sports are concerned in general, it's gonna be the basketball team that's gonna be hurt the most potentially by this, correct? It's going to be the basketball team is going to be hurt by it because we know that their best player, Kyle Casey, uh, is caught up in it, and Brandon Curry, the point guard. That's two starters on what have, what would have been a great Ivy League favorite team this year. The football team may have issues on its own end, but that's not confirmed or verified yet, and and I don't know if it'll be the marquee names certainly. I mean, in terms of like college sports, right. the basketball players are clearly the ones who are going to make any degree of waves here. See, that's why we sent my brother to Yale. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, listen, it, it's it's an awkward situation for all involved, and I don't know if the university is really going to be able to say much due to rules about student privacy and all of that. So I don't know how much will really come out in the end. But, yeah, I mean, this is just, you know, it's it's the last thing that Tommy Amaker or his program would want, you know, is 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 a, is a single final exam undoing what, what has been, you know, half a decade of work and building a program and trying to convince right. people that basketball and academics can coexist. Whether this specific instance speaks directly to that or whether it's an overlapping circle in the Venn diagram of general academic scandal and athletic scandal, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. Well, I think another thing we proved here is Luke Wynn is badass, too. I mean, oh, yeah. he's, I mean, he's great. He's, he's, he is, uh, in my opinion, you know, he's as good as anybody out there in writing on college basketball. And it was good to work with him. I mean, he was on top of the story. And, uh, and yeah, no, he, he, he's, got, he's got it. Now, is there no Harvard piece of sports news that does not pass your desk at SI? Like, if the word Harvard and, and, and sports is attached, we got to get Pablo on it, right? <laughs> I mean, I, the, the hilarious thing about this is that that was literally the most useless kind of credential to have in sports journalism up right. until <laughs> Harvard basketball emerged. 
I mean, other than that, I mean, it's not like the Ryan Fitzpatrick beat was burning for coverage, <laughs> um, as as you all know. Well, but I was just no, going to ask you. I was just going to ask you, no lie, when you're coming to Buffalo to try to get Ryan Fitzpatrick to shave his beard, but uh, I will. I will. I. I, I we have. I'm. I'm a couple of degrees away from him. I think so. I can. I can get the message to him. But no. I mean, in terms of the coverage stuff, uh, I ended up talking to Luke about this. I had heard about it before, and and there was stuff that I wanted to contribute also. So it ended up making sense that I would be in some way involved at that time. Well, the real reason I called you this week is because you had some fantastic pictures on your Tumblr. <laughs> I don't think we've ever plugged your Tumblr. You want to give it out, or is that something it's, you keep close? just because? Poblog, the name of my Poblog. blog, is okay. is probably the greatest consequence of being named Pablo. Is that I can add the G and and have a Tumblr that is named Poblog. Uh, but no, I mean it's I, that's where I just post all the things that I don't do Instagram. So right. that's where all the all the snapshots from my random travels go. Right, and your random travels led you to the Mercedes Benz Superdome, which is one of the most random uh, pairings <laughs> of sponsorship and stadium, considering the local economics of the city, but uh, you traveled to the Mercedes-Benz Superdome and you got to see firsthand RG3 basically pick apart the Saints' new defense. Um, And I guess most of our listeners and me didn't have the ability to be there. I watched the whole game on TV being a big Saints fan, but I guess what I want to know is from the building, what did you see from RG3 that impressed you surprised you whatever I mean what was it what did it look like in the building right no so the bit of background first is that I had you know as you know profiled RG3 back at Baylor literally a year ago this month I was when the story came out and then I ended up seeing him at the Heisman sort of proceedings in New York and I've kept tabs on him and I've always been very very high on what his potential is in terms of a prospect I think everybody could agree that his athleticism is is the best at quarterback that we've seen since Michael Vick. Yes. Um, and you could have an argument that because he's uh, an Olympic hurdler in the 400, he, in in some ways he might be better um, in terms of what his actual. It, however, you want to define that he is he is a, a superlative athlete. But the question was, was you know, he is the eighth quarterback in eight years to start again for the Washington Redskins, and he was going up against the Saints, who spent the entire offseason being really, really angry about being stigmatized as the Bounty Gate team. Yeah. And you, and everybody knew that New Orleans gets behind its team as much, if not more, than any other city in the NFL, pretty much, maybe short of Green Bay. Uh, and so going into that environment, in that dome, which is a nightmare in terms of a rookie quarterback stepping into something like that. You know, everybody expected him to struggle and the Redskins to lose at the very least. But what became apparent was that the Redskins had an offensive game plan. Well, really an all-around game plan defensively, too, as we found out. But offensively, they had the perfect plan, the perfect scheme for, for Robert Griffin III, and they exploited all of his abilities. You know, they had a lot of college-type plays that we saw him running at Baylor um, from the from the get-go. And, and RG3, you know, we were talking after the game, and he said, yeah, they, they took the reins off me and let me do a lot of the stuff that I'm used to doing. And what that meant was a lot of these short passes, a lot of... Uh, a lot of rollouts, you know, they had him run the ball, a couple quarterback keepers, get hit a couple of times. I mean, that's stuff that he did 
in college and destroyed the Big 12, and he did it against the Saints. So it was incredibly impressive. You know, it was interesting because we all know that teams don't show. They show as little as they can in those four preseason games that the NFL right. sinfully charges fans full price for. Different argument, different day. But uh, it seems like on Sunday, Washington showed a different type of offense than I think the Saints had a chance to prepare for. And I wonder if you think that they can sustain what they did on Sunday to the Saints long term. Like if you think about that 88-yard touchdown pass, I give RG3 a lot of credit. He hung in there, but he got blasted by Malcolm Jenkins. And I don't know where Roman Harper was. That probably should have been a 20-yard play, not an 88-yard play. Do you think that what we've seen on Sunday is sustainable in the NFL? yeah, that's 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 the question. Um, and Roman Harper, yeah, got burnt. I mean, the, in, the the Saints' defense generally, I think it's worth mentioning. It was 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 just bad. I mean, yes. they did not look up to the task, and that was surprising given how much everybody imagined they were looking forward. The defense specifically was looking forward to this game. But yeah, I mean, in the NFL, we saw this with Jim Harbaugh, for example, last year with the 49ers, he had a bag of tricks that was super effective the first time around, was less effective the second time around, although still very effective. And, you know, fast forward, of course, to to this week, and he looked like the best team in the NFL. So, I mean, it's impossible to sustain, you know, a schematic advantage to paraphrase what uh, I believe Charlie Weiss said of the Notre Dame right. defense, uh, offense when he first arrived there. Um, so, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how teams adjust. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that the Redskins have a toy in Robert Griffin III that other teams are salivating at. I mean, the guy can do everything you ask him to do. And he started 8 of 8, you know, and he ended up having a game, 300 yards, over 300 yards, two touchdowns, no picks that no one had ever done before. So in terms of giving anybody confidence that they could repeat this, I don't know if you could ask for a better submission of evidence than what RG3 and Mike Shanahan turned in. You know, it's impossible not to compare RG3 to Mike Vick. I mean, it just it rolls off the tongue so easily to make that comparison. Right. But one big difference I'm noticing right away is that when Michael Vick came into the league, you just got the entitled athlete sense from him, the arrogance, the I'm better than you. And of course, that manifested into the problems that Michael Vick had. But yet, when you listen to Robert Griffin talk after the game and see him holding the football from the 88-yard pass like it's his firstborn child, and it just seemed, it feels so different. It feels like this is just a, a, such a good person that's going to be easy to get behind. He's going to be a hero in Washington, and he's going to be the kind of star that the NFL can really, really build around. Are you, are you with me on that? Yeah, I mean, the what was immediately obvious when I met uh, Rob back at Baylor was that he, you know, this is a future politician if he wanted to, and I don't mean that in the pejorative sense. I mean that in the in the he is incredibly incredibly articulate and that's not you know that's oftentimes a coded sort of racially loaded word when you say oh he's so well spoken but he is somebody who could host his own tv show who could run for office i mean he is an incredibly friendly 
even-tempered, and the right word is probably just intelligent guy. I mean, he's super smart, graduated from Baylor in three years, studying for his master's, wanted to go to law school, could have done it, you know, his honor roll, all of that. I mean, he's one of those guys who you could, you know, put out there. I mean, the Redskins protect him so much because he's the rookie quarterback because they don't want him to mess up, and that's to be expected, but he's the type of guy who could run press conferences in his sleep. So I don't think, and it, it, I mean, when you talked about after the game, uh, you know, on Sunday, he, you know, he walked, I was, I was walking behind him into the little visitors press conference area and he was wearing his full uniform, which yep. was really funny because you don't usually see players do that, but he was like that ball. I mean, I wouldn't compare it to a baby. He was spinning that thing with the ease of somebody who'd given a million press conferences before. I mean, he was not, you, you look, you look at rookie athletes and it's hard to know how much you want to make of their ability to deal with the press. But when you have somebody who's that good and that natural at it, it's, 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 it's pretty, it's pretty staggering. And the Redskins have, you're right. I mean, the NFL is thrilled. The Redskins are thrilled. And we know he's been endorsing every product already before he ever played a game. He's probably given close to a million press conferences at this point after the preseason. And he's did it. He did it to Baylor too. So I mean, this kid is—he's uh, he, a veteran already. I read about how the Redskins are trying to limit uh, his access by maybe like only allowing him to do one press conference a week and and some different wrinkles with that. Ha- have you been able to get close to him in a sense, or have you been able to get everything you needed in terms of working with the Redskins and with Rob to? do what you were trying to do, being down there and whatever you're trying to write for magazine or for website? Yeah, I mean, I got enough that I, I got enough um, for what I needed to do. I wasn't writing a full-blown feature on him. It was really, you know, a piece off of the game in the debut. We were running pieces on uh, on Manning, Luck, and Griffin in this week's issue. Uh, but, I mean, it, that's the modern NFL. Anybody who covers the NFL regularly, and I dip into it on occasion, can tell you that it's so hard. Access generally to the stars is probably the worst in any of the major sports. And luckily, I mean, I, I go back with him a year ago, and I, I have talked to his family a bunch of times, and I did that again. And, and I know the folks at Baylor, and he you know, remembers me from, from back then and from the times we've met. And so, yeah, I mean... I ended up getting the access that I got. We ended up uh, after the game. I mean, SI or any magazine, as as you can imagine, isn't on the same deadline as the newspapers and online right. guys. So I could wait out everybody else, and then I I somehow managed to dipl- diplomatically negotiate, uh, you know, walking across the field with him towards the bus after everyone else was gone. So I got I got that, and that was ultimately enough. So yeah, I mean, it, it, but again. This is par for the course. I mean, he's a star quarterback in the NFL in a major market, and the Redskins have always been uh, ones to play things close to the vest. The sportscasters are finishing up with our good, bo- our good buddy, uh, Pablo Estori, who you can follow on Twitter at SI Pablo Tori, and he mentioned his uh, Tumblr is Poblog, I guess is how you would pronounce yeah, it. Poblog. Yeah, Poblog.tumblr.com. Yeah. Awesome. So <laughs> last thing, and we'll let you go. I know it's a busy day for you following the Harvard stuff and NFL sure. and all the other kind of things you do on a day-to-day basis. But uh, what about the Saints? To me, they looked really flat. Um, you think this is a game they can walk away, say, all right, bad day, Mulligan, and we still had a chance to throw a Hail Mary in the end zone that would have set us up for a two-point conversion to tie? 
We lost by eight points on opening day to Green Bay last year in a game that we were pretty much dominated in from start to finish. Think they can take that approach, or did you see more, you know, being there? Did it look even worse than that? Yeah, I think it looked worse than that. Uh, I think it was. It just seemed like they did not have the personnel to really, you know, hang with an offense like that defensively. You know, Drew Brees and Jimmy Graham should be enough offensively, and and. and Drew Brees will be Drew Brees, you know. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's very important to keep in mind. All the reporters went down to field level with, I think, like five minutes left in the fourth quarter. The game looked out of reach. And we ended up watching the game on a tiny TV in, like, one of the side rooms and, like, trying to look through the tunnel because the Redskins ended up letting them get back with an eight, one possession. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot... There's a lot to take away from the fact that you played so poorly and were so flat and so deflated, as you said, and still only lost you know, by a score, pretty much. But I think the larger issue is, if you can't get up for the season opener, what are you going to get up for? You know, I'm tempted to think, well, maybe if, if they were this poor, it's better that it happens at the beginning of the season as opposed to mid-season or later in the season. But I think if we're going to take anything away from the season opener... I think how poorly they came out is is, is fundamentally troubling. Um, but the last thing about about the Saints is, you know, this is week one. That's right. the ultimate caveat. You know, the Redskins last year beat the Giants to open their season, and we all know how their respective years turned out. So it's not encouraging, but it's by no means, you know, this is a long, long season. And every NFL season, there's a story arc that looks like it's going to last the first three weeks, four weeks, and then it just totally collapses on itself. And that could be both the Redskins and the Saints. Going to a game this week? I am not. I am in New York and doing a couple other things, but uh, I, will, I will now be watching. Yeah, I'll get to go. I get to revert to NFL fan mode and, and monitor 50 games at once. Watch a little Red Zone? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, <laughs> uh, I missed it this weekend, believe me. All right, Pablo. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon, bud. Thanks, man. Anytime. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonette Ocho Cinco, TJ Pushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, I want to thank Pablo Estore for being on the show and always being there for us. And uh, let's transition to Five on Fantasy. So, we've been pumped about this because, you know, we're fantasy honks. Yep. No doubt about it. And we both had great first weeks. And uh, let's get into it. What do you want to start with? All right, I guess we could start with uh, a little what have I learned. How about that? Okay. Uh, Week one, like I said, was a crazy high-scoring week, if you listen to the intro. Uh, and the first thing I learned was never doubt Adrian Peterson or Maurice Jones-Drew. I know right. I said the same thing off the start, but, wow, I don't know why I expected MJD to be Chris Johnson uh, of last year. And I know why I doubted Adrian Peterson, but I guess if he says he's going to play week one, he's going to play week one, and he's going to play well. You know, we should have known when that guy was winning races up a hill with Percy with Hyland yeah. that he was going to be okay. That I should guess. have been a huge, huge red flag. I don't know if the Vikings were playing possum or if it was just such a close game that they had to play him a little bit more or if uh, – who's the backup there? I can't Toby Gerhardt. Toby Gerhardt. 
I think he got a little banged up or something or just wasn't effective. But initially before the game, there were reports that were like, oh, we're going to get him in there for 10, 15 snaps, Peterson. And then he busts out like a 90-yard, two-touchdown game, and he just made the most of his carries. He averaged almost five yards a carry. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Uh, In addition to those two guys being great, I did a little uh, fact-checking here, and there were nine quarterbacks that had 300-plus yards. Hmm. Uh, Joe Flacco and Matt Ryan both had 299, so if you really get bonuses, they just missed. And Carson Palmer had 297. So 13 guys had 297 yards or more. I'm not exactly sure what that means I learned. Maybe it means outside of the elite few guys, you can wait on quarterback. Yeah, maybe maybe that that's evidence of it. Highlights the wait on quarterback strategy. Right. I mean, if you're going to have a guy like I still expect guys like Rodgers, who had a tough game but still had over 300 yards, led the team in rushing. Uh, I still expect those type of guys to separate themselves, Brady, Breeze, from the rest of the pack. But there's no point in drafting the sixth quarterback. You might as well draft the tenth. And uh, in some cases, for me, that was Tony Romo, who had over 300 yards, two TDs, looked good against the tough defense in the Giants. So if you're not getting an elite guy, wait on quarterback. I guess what I learned, I got a couple things. Number one, don't be too cute the first week. You drafted guys in certain spots for a reason and keep them there. Um, I don't think any of my first, second, or third round picks disappointed me. I mean, those guys, the guys that I drafted to be studs were studs, and that's the reason I drafted them. And we're going to talk in a minute about Randall Cobb and kind of the confusion that he's creating. But get your guys in that you, you know, until you get a reason not to start a guy like, I don't know. Well, a guy I'm glad I avoided that I knew I was going to avoid, and we talked about it on a podcast before. If he came up, and he was still available, would I take Matt Forte or him? It was Chris Johnson. That's my second thing I learned. Okay. Chris Johnson's still bummed. Chris Johnson is yeah. going to be that guy yep. that is going to drive you crazy. You're going to have to start him because of where you drafted him and because of his potential. But I, I didn't see any signs. And it's not like the New England defense is exactly a world beater. Uh, I expect the Titans, I think they play San Diego this week. It should be a closer matchup. So maybe the Titans just rant, uh, abandon the run a little bit, but boy, he's a guy that when he was great would do a lot, and he don't didn't always need 30, 35 touches. He would do he would right. just he was a home run threat. He's, he's missing something. Yeah, it's been totally lost. If Usain Bolt wants to race him, Chris Johnson would get blown away. Yes, I mean I think there's probably twenty guys in the league that look faster than Chris. He Johnson averaged point right four yards a carry. It's embarrassing. I mean, and he was. I mean, luckily, he had six catches for 47 yards. So if you had him in a PPR, he, I mean, what, got you probably 11 points at, at least. Yeah, so that's and it's better saved than, your day a little bit. Yeah, if, if, he, if you don't have him in a PPR and it's only yardage and touchdowns, you probably only got five points. Another guy, if, Four you, points. if you do have in PPR, that something I learned today, uh, or what I learned over the weekend, is Darren McFadden is 100% of the Raiders' offense. Yep. He had... 118 combined yards, so not bad. Nothing phenomenal, though. 32 yards rushing isn't very good at all. Uh, 86 receiving is great. If it's a PPR league, he had 13 catches. How many targets? Uh, I don't have his targets right in front of me. I'll but, find it. Uh, go on. You go out yeah, and so, I'll find it. 
13 catches in a PPR. He could have caught 13 balls for zero yards and rushed for zero yards and had an okay day for you. And that's not even counting when he caught in his mouth. <laughs> if he's going to continue to catch anywhere near that, he had 18 targets. 18, yep. That's that's insane. Uh, he had almost over a third of the targets the team had. Boy, some people, I know the fear with him is injury. It's right. always injury. But, man, this guy is a, a first-round talent if he can stay healthy. that That's incredible. And in a game, he didn't score. Well, you figure that means on 33 of the Raiders' plays, they tried to get the ball to Darren McFadden, either by handing it to him or passing it to him. Yeah, and I'm not sure how many plays they ran. Well, they had 46 passes and 20 runs, so 66. So, so that's half. Half of the time they want him to have the ball. That's incredible. Uh, if he doesn't get totally burnt out, Midway through the season, he's going to be worth – I mean, he might be worth it. Ride him now. Yeah, right. Ride him Get, now. Don't think of sitting him for any reason at all because he's going to be great while he's in there. All right, so let's transition to next week. So before we can get into starts and sits, we got to talk a little bit about pickups. And you got to be really careful week one because with pickups come drops. Yeah, right. I mean, ninety percent of the leagues that are out there to pick up a guy, you usually have to drop a guy. I mean, I don't think I'm in a league where you can pick up a guy without dropping. Yeah, him. unless you have like an IR slot, but even the rules for that, I think the guy has to be like on IR or have like some sort of longer term injury. And I'm not sure anybody would really fall in that category yet. There's two guys. I mean, probably the list of pickups is around. I have three written down. I have One of them is that, probably owned in most leagues. I have two that I think if they're available in your league, you have to try to pick them up, and that's Randall Cobb and Alfred Morris. Yeah, I I didn't have Cobb written down, but I definitely agree. Uh, and he probably isn't owned in most leagues. I know he was a guy that I think you and I both talked about as being a bit of a sleeper, but he looks like... I think I've seen 13% of ESPN leagues. Okay, wow. So. so, yeah, go out there and get Randall Cobb if you don't have him. It looks like they're using him in a Darren Sproles, uh, Percy Harvin-type role. He got touch after touch after touch there. They made a point to get him the ball. And if you're in a league where maybe they award six points for a special teams touchdown or maybe some of that yardage, this guy returns kicks and returns punts, and he does it very well. So that's even if you're in a league that rewards for something like that, that's even more of a reason to want to pick that guy up. Absolutely. Um, two other guys I had real quick. Uh, C.J. Spiller, probably owned in every league. If you're in a real shallow league, maybe, you got to get him. Uh, he'd be the number one pickup if he's not owned because he looked great against the Jets in a blowout. So, I mean, maybe they were letting him have a little bit, but the first touchdown came on a long run early in the game when it was still in question. And uh, the other guy I have is John Dwyer. Uh, he didn't put up huge numbers or anything like that, but he split carries with Isaac Redmond and did way more with his carries than Redmond right. did. Pittsburgh is a team that likes to run the ball, uh, so I, I'd be excited if John Dwyer was out there to, to maybe just stash him on the bench or maybe in a flex spot if you're hurt with injury. But And to clarify, Alfred Morris is owned in 18% of ESPN.com leagues. Uh, John Dwyer is owned in 182 Randall Cobb in 13.4. They don't list Spiller because he's probably, probably very owned, high. Yeah, I just figured he is a backup, so there is some potential that maybe he's not owned. And did you have hard. one other one? I didn't. Nope, nope, that was it. Uh, 
There's a lot of receivers out there that yeah, have big like days. Yeah, like Ogletree, Hill, Stephen Hill, Brandon LaFowle. Those guys, I'm not wasting a lot of free agent dollars on. Or One interesting guy maybe is Derek uh, Dexter McCluster because depending on your league, he might have dual eligibility, running okay. back wide receiver. Yeah, or, and he got, a lot of, he got a little bit of looks there. Yeah, so. he, he played well, and he's only owned in 3.9% of ESPN leagues. And there's tight ends out there that ended up having nice days that also shows – if you're not getting one of the top two, maybe three tight ends, maybe Aaron Hernandez is one of them, might be an elite tight end next year too just because of the way New England plays. But if you're not getting one of those guys, wait on tight end. There's right. a lot of guys. Uh, what's his name in Minnesota? Kyle Rudolph? Yes, big dude. Big guy, kind of. I mean, he was like a backup tight end pick in most leagues, and he had a real nice day. So I mean, Martellus Bennett looked good in New York yeah. for the Giants. He's owned in 36.7% of ESPN. So get elite quarterbacks or wait. Get elite tight ends or wait. I mean, that'll be the lesson for next year, I guess. I mean, I know it's only one week, but... If for some reason you're searching for a quarterback, Christian Ponder showed me some stuff this week. Uh, I know Matthew Berry recommended him in his column as well, and I know his owning... Is real low, I think three point six. Andrew Luck, I know he had a lot of interceptions, but if you're not heavily penalized for interceptions, he did throw for three hundred yards against a solid defense. So there's worse guys out there you can have. Hopefully nobody's in that much quarterback trouble yet, as I don't think there were any major injuries this weekend. And so. just to give credit where credit is due, uh we got the percentages from Christopher Harris's article on ESPN.com. Okay. Just so that I just wanted to be able to give people a general idea. Right. You know, I'm sure if Alfred Morris is owning 18% of ESPN.com leagues, he's probably owning about 18% of NFL.com leagues. Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't see it being a big difference. So this way you have some kind of perspective. Just be careful on him. I mean, remember, right. the, remember the Shanahanigans or whatever they call right. him, but he looks good. And if you have him, maybe it's time. Maybe you can sell might high. be able to sell high on him. There's not a lot else there, though. So, I mean, maybe Shanahan Shanahan is forced to kind of use him. They seem to use Roy Halu like in a third down type role. And he didn't look great. He didn't. I mean, I watched that whole game. I seen every carry that anyone in that game had. And I felt by far that Morris looked like the most dynamic back. He looked like a truck, too, man. He looked looked like a load. All right. So, we're going to get some starts and sits. Uh, My starts this week. It's early again, and it'd be real easy to say start like oh start Drew Brees this week. Uh, I'm gonna like go with guys set. that maybe had weaker weeks last week, or maybe guys that maybe you're still unsure of. So I'm gonna say start Philip Rivers against the Titans. Philip Rivers didn't have a terrible game, but in a week where 13 guys threw for 300 yards, he wasn't one of them, and he really he only threw for 231 and a TD. So kind of a a down game for him. I expect San Diego to try to come out and maybe dominate a little more. If they're they're going to challenge for that division, they got to beat teams like Oakland a little worse. I know it was in Oakland and whatever. Rivers has got to look better. They got to find receivers on that team. Antonio Gates has got to get more involved. Uh hopefully they get Ryan Matthews back for fantasy fans out there. And uh yeah, I'm going to say start Philip Rivers. Like for example, if you have Philip Rivers in RG3 this week, I might start Philip Rivers. Yeah, and that's kind of the direction I went. I went with my sit for quarterback. I went with Ben Roethlisberger. My guess if you have Roethlisberger, you have a guy who's real close to him. Like maybe you have Romo and Roethlisberger. Maybe you have Roethlisberger and RG3. Roethlisberger's got a tough matchup this week against the Jets who gave all kinds of fits 
to Ryan Fitzpatrick. And, you know, you know Revis is going to take away half the field. So, and Roethlisberger takes a ton of hits. And against a team like the Jets, who can be real aggressive coming after the quarterback, that makes me nervous. So, if you have a better option than Roethlisberger, I might go that way this week. All right, my running back start this week. Uh, This guy had a great first week, but I'm going to say I kind of believe it right now. I'm going to say start Alfred Morris over the Rams. It's kind of another reason I don't love RG3 this week. He was in a shootout against New Orleans. I don't think he's going to be asked to do as much this week. Probably asked to be a little more conservative and not throw off his... Man, that guy looks strong, but throwing off his back foot, just throwing... He looked like a a baseball player throwing off the wrong foot at times out there, but... uh, I'm going to say Morris gets a lot of carries against the Rams. And I also like Ryan Matthews, like I said, if he plays. All right. My uh, sit at running back is Trent Richardson. He didn't look ready. No. He just didn't look ready. He didn't look like I, – I watched him play quite a bit at Alabama, and there was something really special about the way the guy ran, and it doesn't look like he's ready. I think he's one guy who wanted to get back from the knee surgery and be there for his team on opening day, but he just didn't look ready. It's not the worst matchup in the world against the Bengals, but I'm on wait-and-see mode if I own Trent Richardson right now. I want him to prove to me that he's healthy because he didn't look healthy last week, and he put up really poor numbers. So if you have a better option than Trent Richardson this week, I might go that way. He's one of those guys you were saying, start your studs. He's tough because you probably drafted him in the fourth round. You probably didn't get him much later than that. So. And I just don't know if he's a stud yet. Right. So he's, the Browns have had a horrible track record, and they couldn't. there's no team in the league with worse luck. And he's coming off a knee surgery and had no preseason. Yeah, and Philadelphia just put eight in a box and dared Brandon Whedon to beat him, and he couldn't at all. So it's going to be tough. It's If Richardson's going to be good, he's going to have to be good the way Peterson was right. good. You're going to have to beat those eight-man boxes and – it might be tough with a team as bad as the Browns. Uh, my wide receiver start this week is Wes Welker. Uh, he looked like the forgotten man there in New England. I feel like New England kind of rectifies these situations. I think that they'll make it a point to get him more looks and catches. He had three catches on five targets. That's not right. Uh, he usually has around eight to ten catches and probably 12, 13 targets. So I think they fix that. Uh I mean, New England, like I said, they make it a point to fix problems. And I mean, they're playing the Cardinals, who don't let one game scare you away. No, from I, I would not at all. Right. I, I expect an eight-catch, eighty-yard game out of him again. And so, yeah, start him. Don't don't worry about him yet. My sit at wide receiver is Torrey Smith. Um, maybe not a guy you drafted to be your number three, but maybe you did. I, he He's went close. A lot he of went fantasy all experts over. out there. He were went really all over in him. the leagues I was yep. in. You know, like he he went high in some, he went low in some, and they have a tough matchup this week against the Eagles. And the Eagles gave the Browns passing, and I know that's the Browns, and this is different. But I just think that I would back off Torrey Smith this week. He didn't make a ton of plays in the Monday night game where Joe Flacco was fantastic. He did get down the field deep early in the game for one, I seen. Only targeted three times. Yeah, only got three targets. How many did Bolden get? Bolden had five targets. You know who had about a targets? It's an interesting guy to watch going forward. And again, is the reason you don't go high on tight ends is I don't even know his first name, Pitta. The tight mm-hmm. end there. Dennis Pitta had nine targets, five catches, seventy three yards in a TD. And it looked like when Flacco was in trouble, he looks for Pitta a lot. 
and they got Rice there. So kind of like I'm on wait and see mode for Richardson. I'm on wait and see mode as far as if Torrey Smith can be what some of the what some of the people who predicted he would be in the off season. Yeah. I wasn't there with him. I don't have him on any of my six teams. Uh, there was always someone who wanted him more than me and took him ahead of when I was prepared to take him. And I would just think that if you start two or if you start three, that you probably got two or three better than him this week. And the Eagles got really good corners. By the way, so. Ray Rice, uh, his day got bailed out a little bit by his two touchdowns. Right. He only had 68 yards. He only had three catches for 25 yards. So overall around 100 yards day. But, wow, did he look good. He looked really, really good if you were watching that game. I mean, he did average 6.8 yards a carry. Somehow in a close – well, no, it wasn't a close game. That's why he didn't get any touches. But. I'm looking forward – and he didn't play at all the fourth quarter. Yeah. Pretty so much. I, he was sitting the whole fourth quarter. But I'm really excited to watch Rice versus McCoy this week. McCoy's another guy who didn't get enough touches in week one, especially earlier in the game. Right. They got him some more later in the game. But so if for some reason you only see his stat line and see 68 yards, Ray Rice, I watched most of that game, looked phenomenal. He yeah. looked so shifty Don't and fast. Panic. No, yeah, there's no reason to. All right, last thing to do on 5 on Fantasy today. We're going to update the Listener League. Uh, Don and I continue to dominate. Yeah, we did dominate. Uh, we put up the most and second most points in the league. You put up the most with 164.54 this is a slightly higher scoring league. Yeah, we do two flexes. Because we do two flexes in addition to three or two receivers. Two receivers. Two receivers and two flexes. So it's maybe one positional player more than most leagues have. But, uh, yeah, I I got a bad day from Vic and still ended up putting up pretty big numbers. I got a bad day from Johnson and still got the most points in the league. And I had guys like... Ben Jarvis Green Ellis on my bench who looked okay. I had Ridley on my defense. bench who so, had a great day. I had Lance Moore on my bench. I had Randall Cobb on my bench. And that's actually the guy we were going to get to. Uh, yeah, we got to do so this yeah, that's for a, a second. That's, C- congratulations to everyone who won in the Listener League. Uh, welcome, Ford Kendrick, our new player. Uh, everyone else, welcome back. And we'll talk more about that as we get to it. But this is getting long, and I did want to do something on Cobb before we sign off. Yeah, Randall Cobb. Is an interesting guy this week, and uh, we were kind of off there doing uh, who would you rather start. Uh, it's tough. It's tough with Randall Cobb, and it's especially compounded by the fact that they have a short week. Uh, Greg Jennings got a, had a groin injury, and it might not play. might not play, and it's a Thursday game. And it looked like I already mentioned earlier. It looks like they're going to use Cobb the way they use like Percy Harvin. He got touch after touch after touch. If you're in a PPR, I don't know how you sit this guy. You have to find room for him somewhere. But some rosters, I mean, he's like your probably one of your really late round picks. So if you can pick him up, I'd pick him up and stash him. If you have him on your roster, try to find a way to get him in if you can. Like if my number three receiver was Torrey Smith, I think I'd definitely start. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cobb this week. If I would without a doubt. Number three receiver was Nate Washington. I definitely would get Cobb yes. in. Um, if I have as my number three Robert Meacham, I yes. would definitely get Cobb in. Even more so if your league gives any return yardage or return touchdown points because right. there's always the chance for that. Too. If you have Pierre Garçon and he's not going to play. I might start him regardless over Pierre Garçon. I mean, that's close, but Garçon's kind of a home run hitter guy. And if in a PPR, I think I start him over Garçon at this point. And he's available in leagues. Tons of so, them, it sounds like. The sportscasters are drinking the Randall Cobb Kool-Aid today. Yeah, we're telling you not to go nuts on guys like Morris too much. Uh, 
But yeah, Randall Cobb, I I watched a lot of that game and they're using him. It's not like it was fluky, it's not like there was an injury early in the game. They were using him when Jennings was healthy. And yeah, they're using him. Get him pick him up. If he's out there, get him. All right, we'll be right back with Dan Wolken. Our next guest today is from Hot Springs, Arkansas, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. After college, he spent five years in Colorado covering NCAA hockey and the Denver sports scene and the Air Force Academy for the Colorado Springs Gazette. He has also covered Memphis basketball for the Commercial Appeal. He recently was a national sports columnist for the made-for-iPad newspaper The Daily before moving on to cover college football for USA Today. His work has been honored with awards from the Associated Press Sports Editors and the Colorado Press Association. A warm sportscaster's welcome for the fifth time to Dan Wilkin. What's up, Dan? Uh, just getting ready for another busy week in college football and uh, some big uh, conference games starting uh, in the next couple weeks. And that means uh, much more interesting matchups across the country. And I think uh, I think everyone's ready for that. The first couple weeks uh, were... We're okay, but uh, definitely think that uh, there's going to be some more exciting games in the near future. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I'm just curious of one thing from like a writer and work point of view. How is it to transition from being a guy who's a national columnist who can basically pick and choose his stories each week? Maybe this week I want to do tennis, maybe this week I want to do football – to transitioning to doing what you did like when you were covering Memphis basketball and focusing solely on one sport in college football. How has that transition been? Well, I think that uh, in general, sports journalism is moving into more specialization. And, um, you know, I think that with the Internet and the way that uh, a lot of these websites are set up, including what we're going to be doing at USA Today uh, Sports and the uh, new website uh, that we're going to be releasing uh, this week, I think that you want to have your personalities um, associated with particular sports. I think it helps credibility. I think it gives you more of an opportunity to, to break news and to uh to be an expert on on one thing and um i i kind of like having uh, a more defined area of uh of expertise of of things that every day i know um you know that i can drive the agenda on on one sport well let's get into that sport and it's college football and i read in the open you're an arkansas guy and I think we are all getting ready this week to talk about the big game being number one Alabama versus number, I don't know, eight or so Arkansas or wherever they were ranked. And they lost to a team from Louisiana in these funny white jerseys, and I just couldn't believe it. Uh, what did you think of Arkansas and kind of where they go from here? Well, you saw in the first week that they they might have had some defensive issues. I you know I can't remember who they played in week one, but um, but it was a Jackson you know it wasn't State. a notable opponent right. at all. And the reports from that first game were that they uh, still clearly had some defensive problems. Uh, a team that that 
you know, by all rights, shouldn't have been scoring on them, was, was able to score. And so at that point, you know, if you're Arkansas, you're only one injury or, or two injuries away from, you know, from, from really having some problems. And, and uh, unfortunately for them, Tyler Wilson get, gets hurt in the Louisiana-Monroe game. Uh, they were up uh, a couple scores, and then all of a sudden they lose their quarterback, and uh, their defense is still having some issues, and the momentum turns against them. And then you know, and then all of a sudden you're you're in a situation where it, it's you know one play can decide the game, and if you're a big time favorite, you don't ever want to be in that situation. And clearly a shocking upset, but you know it's college football and. We've seen things like that before, and uh, you know I just think that uh, for Arkansas, it's a culmination of a lot of the off-season issues that they've had, and the defensive problems, and and really relying so much on on you know, the arm of Tyler Wilson to to win football games. Well, I think if you are John L. Smith, what you have to go into the locker room and say is, look, today was a really bad day, but. We lost. We haven't lost an SEC game yet, and if we can win the SEC, we're going to go to the national championship game. No, no SEC champion is going to be kept out because of a mistake made on week two when the starting quarterback is out. The problem is, to this point, Wilson is still, I guess, questionable for the game, and if he's experiencing head injury symptoms at this point, he's probably pretty doubtful. Uh, where do you assess their chances against Alabama? Obviously very slim without Wilson. If Wilson can play, do you think they can be in that game at all? Is there any game plan they can put together to hang with Alabama? Well, it's college football, and teams have have bad days and give underdogs a chance to win, especially on the road. And I've seen some, some great Alabama teams come close to, to losing games that you wouldn't think that they would lose, but... Uh, that's just what happens in the SEC. You have three to four that that every year could go either way, and so you know maybe if, if Tyler Wilson plays and Arkansas comes out uh, with, with the home crowd and and has some belief and some confidence, and you know maybe get get a couple turnovers. I mean, you just don't know what can happen. It's 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 a sixty minute football game, but I think it will be very difficult because I think. Arkansas has, to this point, demonstrated that they're just not as good as Alabama with or without Tyler Wilson, and uh, Alabama doesn't seem to have any sort of uh, weaknesses at this point. They, they, they may be beatable, but um, you know that they're, they're going to play their game, and Nick Saban's going to have them ready, and uh, I expect them to, uh, to, to give a solid effort, and if they do that, then I think they probably win the game. You know, I think we get caught in a little bit of a trap sometimes looking at the preseason rankings and having certain expectations on teams based on those preseason rankings that maybe don't make any sense. I mean, Oklahoma up to this point does not look like a top-five team in the nation. Um, But maybe some other teams look better than their ranking to you and some teams maybe look worse. So far at this point... What teams do you think have outplayed their preseason rankings, and which teams do you think have underperformed? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. You know, I think USC has has underperformed a little bit. Um, they're they're two and zero. They they beat Hawaii handily. Uh, then they went and played Syracuse, and it looked like they were just kind of going through the motions a little bit. And and 
it just didn't look like a, a the kind of inspired performance that you'd expect from a you know number two, number three ranked team um, that a lot of people uh, predict to win the national title. So um, I think USC, just based on you know the way they've looked, is a little bit disappointing. Um, you know, Florida State—they're ranked highly still, but uh, and they played nobody. Um, but have they proven that they're a top five or top ten quality team? Not, not yet. And you certainly have nothing to base that on uh, from last season either. Right, they we'll were nine and four. We'll have to wait two uh, weeks till Clemson, right? On them. I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say we'll probably have to wait two weeks for Clemson on them. But I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, yeah, that's no, that's a big, that's a very big game that's looming really for for both teams. It's it's uh it's at Florida State and. Um, you know that's that's a game that's going to go a long way toward uh, deciding who wins the ACC. But um, you know, I just don't think Florida State has really accomplished a whole lot yet to to be ranked where they are. Um, you know, in terms of teams that are maybe underranked, uh, you know, Kansas State has looked pretty impressive. Uh, they're they're kind of hovering around fifteen based on what they did last year, and and you know, Colin Klein. Uh, very very productive quarterback. I, you know, I, I think that they could be, uh, they could be a little bit higher. Um, Michigan State, you know, number ten. I, I think they've looked better than some of the teams ahead of them. So, uh, you know, I think those those would be kind of a couple teams that come to mind as maybe being a little bit underranked right now. You know, I think we're all looking forward to the shift from the BCS to the playoff, and the idea that maybe that will create better games in September if the committee is going to be putting as high of a onus on strength of schedule as they seem to be indicating at this early point. But in the next couple of weeks, as we get through September and into October and really get into the middle of conference play, are, is there a game or two or three that you have circled on your calendar in the next couple couple of weeks that are kind of must-see football games for the college football fan? Well, I think – this week, USC at Stanford is a big one. Notre Dame at Michigan State is going to be another, uh, you know, kind of real interesting separation uh, game for you know for teams that that have you know big time aspirations of, of making BCS bowls. Um, you know, it's hard to look too far ahead because you just don't know week to week. But uh, we mentioned uh, next week the uh, Clemson. Florida State game is, is going to be one that uh, a lot of people are going to be pointing to. Uh, BYU Boise State is is coming up uh, pretty soon. Uh, yeah, it's in Thursday Boise. The 20th. Uh, you know, it's Boise's in somewhat of a rebuilding situation right now, um, and and BYU I think is pretty good, very good defensively. Uh, Arizona's you know right now kind of uh, a hot team. Coming off that win over Oklahoma State, they they go to Oregon in a couple weeks. Um, that's going to be a game that uh, uh, you know a lot of people uh, are are looking at. Other than that, it's um, you know there's not a whole lot uh, on that weekend of the 22nd, uh, and uh, you know it's, it's it's hard to look too far past that because right. there's going to be some teams that uh, that emerge that uh, you know that we don't expect. But uh, you know, I'd say for the first three weeks, those are kind of the the ones that uh, that stick out at looking down the road a little bit, you know, Ohio State goes to Michigan State. Uh, if they remain undefeated, that'll be uh, an interesting game as well. 
Yeah, I think uh, from just listening to you for the fans out there, that the week four of the season is going to start with that BYU uh, Boise game, and then we're going to have Oklahoma Kansas State that week. We're going to have uh, Oregon Arizona that week, and the Florida State Clemson game that week. So that should be a really good, um, good week of action. Uh, as we move through September here, and we get into uh, October and November when we can start talking more seriously about things like Heisman Trophy and National Championship and BCS and things like that. What are the things that you're most interested in following as, as far as college football? What are the stories now as the season is in its infancy that you're watching and monitoring that maybe the untrained college football fan, you know, more of the casual fan, maybe it's off his radar a little bit? Well, you know, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is just uh, the teams that have changed conferences uh, so far, you know, how well it's worked out. And Colorado, Utah, both really struggling in the Pac-12. You know, I think uh, Nebraska has made almost no impact in the Big Ten. And then we're going to start to see, uh, coming up in the next couple weeks, TCU and West Virginia and how they do in the Big 12. Um, Texas A&M and Missouri had their first SEC games, both lost last weekend. So, you know, all the teams that switched leagues to this point have, have been uh, disappointing. So that's one thing that I think is worth, uh, you know, worth keeping in mind as we go forward. Um, you know, other than that, I mean, you know, just a lack of big non-conference matchups, uh, you know, really kind of the start of the season – Make, makes it, uh, you know, I don't want to say a, a little less interesting because, uh, you know, college football is always, always pretty good, but, uh, you know, you're just not learning a whole lot necessarily about some of these teams. I mean, even Alabama, Michigan it just doesn't punch, you know, Alabama's weight right now. So, right. Uh, so I don't know how much we, we learned about, uh, about, about Alabama. You know, LSU typically plays a, a real strong non-conference schedule, and this year it's been a little—it's uh, a little light. I mean, I know they—they they just beat Washington last weekend, but uh, it was in Baton Rouge. How good is Washington, really? You know, by this time last year, LSU had already beaten Oregon on a neutral field and won at West Virginia, so we knew how good they were. And and so, I, you know, I think LSU this year with a new quarterback—they've um, looked great so far. Uh, even without the honey badger, and I'm kind of curious just to see how how they evolve and uh, whether you know they look more solid offensively going into the meat of their schedule. Wait, so you're telling me that a non-conference against North Texas, Washington, Idaho, and Towson doesn't do it for you? Well, it's, it uh, just doesn't measure up <laughs> to what they did last year. I mean, last year they played one of the great, um, difficult non-conference schedules. Uh, that, that any team pl- could play in the you know in the modern era. I mean, you got to go to Morgantown, a very tough environment, very tough team, um, and then you play Oregon at a neutral site. I mean, those are two you know big time monstrous games early in the season where where you could you know you could play yourself out of a national title right away if you're if you're LSU and you don't win those games. So um, you know, I think we're used to seeing them play. Uh, great teams early in the season, and, and this year just a little bit different. Well, I think what might have happened is, you know, LSU, they travel so well, and I think a lot of fans went to Morgantown, and 
mistakenly brought their couches and and when those couches were burned i th- i think maybe the program stepped back a little bit because it you know it, there just wasn't enough couches for their fans this this season the couch burning jokes never get old <laughs> uh, sorry about that couldn't resist. No, I did want to ask you one more thing about LSU. You know, this year they do have a new quarterback, someone who does have NHL or NHL NFL potential, and that's been probably not the case since they had Jamarcus Russell there. Do you think a team that for so many years now has has been used to winning one way can can kind of adjust and change on the fly to get more of an NFL pro style offense in to fit the personnel that they have there? Oh, I'm sure they welcome it because what happened is when you played a great defense like Alabama last year and then had to play them twice, they just really got exposed. Their lack of passing game really got exposed. And LSU's got a great stable of running backs. You know, Spencer Ware and those guys, Ford, those guys are big physical runners, but they, you know, teams will stack it in the box if if they don't respect uh, the passing game, and they didn't last year. So I think it'll help LSU. I mean, and, and it doesn't really change anything they do defensively. Um, you know, and, and we know that they're pretty dominant on that side of the ball. So, uh, yeah, I think it, it can only help them. I just think the issue is, you know, whether it, it was real or, or whether it was hype with, with Mettenberg, whether he was ready uh, to step in and, and produce. And, you know, so far uh, – the results have been pretty good, and they beat Washington forty-one to three. And uh, you know, I, I think that's a real good sign going forward. And and you know, they've got some winnable games coming up here in the next three. They should be five and zero oh when they go down to Florida on October sixth. And you know, and then I think that's that that game will tell us a lot. Sportscasters are here finishing up with Dan Wolken potentially for the last time after my couch jokes just totally bombed. He may choose to stay far away from us from this point forward. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Wolken, W-O-L-K-E-N. And, of course, you can read him now on USA in the USA Today and on usatoday.com. Uh, last thing, I asked Tommy Tomlinson this at the end of the interview last week, and he had one extra week. You have had two extra weeks to see anything, so I don't feel like I'm putting you on the spot too bad. At this point, who do you think we're going to see in the BCS championship game, and who would be your odds-on favorite for the Heisman? Uh, at this point, I would say LSU is is a good bet to be in there, and uh, in Oregon, I think LSU Oregon is is going to be the matchup I'll go with right now. Um, reserve the right to to change that, of course. Um, you know, Heisman, it's it's so early, uh, impossible to say. I mean, Barkley is the preseason favorite, I would think, and uh, he hasn't done anything wrong to this point, so. Um, I'll, I'll keep him in that number one spot for now. But yeah, in terms of individual players, I just think it's real too, really too early to kind of separate the field. Are you going to a game this weekend? Yeah, I'm going to either Arkansas, Alabama, or uh, Tennessee, Florida. We're kind of undecided on which one. Um, depends on a couple other factors. So uh, I'll be at one of those two SEC games. All right, well, we'll keep an eye on Twitter for some updates. And thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it, Dan. All right, thanks. Thanks, man.
All right, I want to thank Dan Wilkin for appearing on the show and for pretending to laugh at some of my corny jokes there. <laughs> uh, book club update. Big book club update today as we're transitioning somewhat later in the month from our August book club books to our September book club books. First things first, I want to say thank you again to Adam Lazarus for being one of the coolest authors we've dealt with. His book is called Best of Rivals, Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy. It's a fantastic book. If you're into stuff, if you're into the NFL, if you're into quarterback rivalries, if you're a fan of Montana or Young or Rice or any of the guys from the 49ers dynasty, I highly recommend it. It's not a long book. It's not a hard read, but it's really entertaining and interesting. And I want to thank Adam again for being a part of this and uh, another satisfied customer as far as the book club goes. He was really pleased with how everything went. So thank you again to Adam. All right, September. We took it easy on you in the (laughs) summer. We backed off a little bit. We didn't have a lot of books each month. Well, we're changing that this month. We got three books on three different, three very different things, uh, three different authors, and a really cool opportunity for each. So let's start with the first one. First one is called The Good Son, The Life of Ray Boom Boom Mancini by an author named Mark Kriegel. This book comes out on Tuesday, so one week from today. And the book was highly recommended to us by Jeff Perlman, the author of our book club, Book of the Month, Book of the Year, Sweetness. So here's another cool thing. If you're one of our Buffalo listeners... And we imagine we'll have more this week with Mike Shope being on the show. There's a really cool opportunity surrounding The Good Son being uh, the book of the month, book of the year, or book of the month, book this month. There's going to be an event at Barnes & Noble on Niagara Falls Boulevard in Amherst on Wednesday, September 26th, both Mark Kriegel and... And Ray Boom Boom Mancini are going to be in the building. They're going to be signing books, answering questions. And I think Don and I are going to be there as well. Uh, So you can meet us if that's been a lifelong dream of yours. I know it is of many. (laughs) Uh, But it should be a really cool night. And it's the first chance that we get to see the the book club come to life a little bit. So I'm really looking forward to The Good Son, which comes out Tuesday. Uh, we're going to have a copy of The Good Son to give away, and Mark is definitely going to be on the podcast. He is the author of Namath, a uh, biography, which was a book last football season or so that was really big, and Pistol, The Life of Pete uh, Maravich, the basketball player. Uh, he's also a columnist and commentator for the NFL Network, so not a guy that you're probably unfamiliar with. So looking forward to that book and Mark and the events and everything that goes with that. The second book is by an author named Ray Glear, and it's called How the SEC Became Goliath, the Making of College Football's Most Dominant Conference. It comes out on September 25th. We should have a copy of that to give away as well, and we will speak with Ray sometime in the middle of October, right in the middle of SEC conference football time. So it'll be really cool there. And the last book, something Don and I are both very excited about. It's called One Last Strike, 50 Years in Baseball, 
ten and a half games back in one final championship season. The author of that book is Tony La Russa, uh, World Series winning manager for the Oakland A's and the St. Louis Cardinals. And found out today he is going to be on one of our podcasts in October. So a really exciting month for the book club. Uh, Boom Boom, Life of uh, Ray Boom Boom Mancini by Mark Kriegel. How the SEC Became Goliath by Ray Glear. And One Last Strike by Tony LaRussa. All very exciting stuff. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Mike Shope. Our next guest today is from Grand Island, New York, and is a graduate of St. John Fisher College in Rochester, New York. He is the current host of the Mike Shope and the Bulldog Show on WGR 55, and also hosts a weekend collectible show called The Hobby. He has spent time on ESPN Radio and was originally paired on WGR with Chuck Dickerson. He is an avid player of the board game Settlers of Catan and once drafted dogs with the second overall pick in an animal draft. He is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the smart and talented Mike Shope. What's going on, Mike? Hi there. Thanks for a very friendly and kind introduction. Yeah, thank you very much for doing this and joining us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, let's kind of get started with the Bills just to get that out of the way because there's a lot of other cool stuff we want to ask you about. I guess the best way to start is... Do you think the Bills team that we've seen on Sunday is go- the team that ultimately plays out most of the season? Do you think it's going to be closer to what we've seen Sunday or maybe closer to what most of the fan expectations were going into the year, that being a better team that maybe challenges for a wild card? Well, I certainly expected them to to be better Sunday than they were, and my hopes for them, if not my expectations, were that they could actually uh, make the playoffs. I think that's the only standard that anybody's really using. That's the only goal, I think, um, because it's been 12 years and that's the longest streak in the league. But Sunday was disconcerting, to say the least, and what it did to me was remind me of all the things through the years that I had determined were the, the systematic reasons why they were losing year after year. I think um, the optimism made some sense, and it still does, but um, I think for a long time they've been very poorly run. And I also think that most of the good teams in the league, it's not that complicated to figure out why they're good. They have a great quarterback or a great coach or some uh, other easily identifiable trait, and the Bills don't really have that. The fans are hoping that the defensive line is excellent and that the quarterback is pretty good, and uh, neither was really the case Sunday. So I wouldn't want to make a prediction exactly, but definitely Sunday's game was a uh, jarring surprise to many fans. You kind of mentioned it, and I don't know if I want to call it a catchphrase or a cliché, but in the league today, people always say it's a quarterback league. 
and the Bills decided to invest in the quarterback they have, and I think some fans wanted to give him a pass for the poor finish last year based on a rib injury that he supposedly suffered against the Redskins. He didn't look good Sunday, made a lot of bad decisions, and really never put them in a position to have any chance to win that game. Do you believe in him? Do you think he is a guy that can lead this team? I think the best I would hope for is that he's good enough to get them to the playoffs with a good defense. I don't think he's great. I don't really know what evidence there is of him being great, and I'm the kind of guy that needs evidence. I'm not a big faith guy. I'm more just show me. And he hasn't really won, you know, very much. So I think the best-case scenario for them is to get to the playoffs and then lose. And I think long-term, they're going to need someone better. Now, you said that's best-case scenario. So, I mean, is that really what's – would it be better for the team to lay it – how am I going to phrase this? They've never laid an egg bad enough where they got a good enough draft pick to make a difference. Uh is getting to the wild card and losing, is that a good thing? Well, I don't think that's necessarily what they're aiming for. I, those are my well, right, expectations. Right. Um, I, I generally think in sports you, you want to go one of two ways. You either want to be a contender for a championship or you want to be bad. Right. Um, because sports, of course, rewards the worst teams, which I think is messed up. But, yeah, I think... Um, that's been part of the reason why they've been bad for so long is that they have not often had really bad seasons where they could draft somebody who could really turn them around. You know, one thing that really surprised us was the Bills' ability to get Mario Williams here and then to keep him here and, and to, to make that kind of a splash in the offseason. It was very un-Bills-like. Do you think that's something, putting aside the willingness to spend the actual money, let's just assume that they would be willing to do that, Long term, do you think the Bills can make this a destination for the top free agents year after year? And if not, what do they have to do to make Buffalo the kind of a place where players would want to play, maybe similar to the way it was when they were going to four Super Bowls and had so much talent on both sides of the ball? I think there are a lot a lot of different parts to that. I think that's a very difficult job for the Bills, um, so I don't. You know, I have some sympathy for them in that, but most of the trouble they have attracting good players is, in my opinion, fully their own fault. And the best way to get good players to be interested in your team, just as it is the best way for any company to have top prospects interested in it, is to be worthy of them. And the Bills have not, in the slightest, been worthy of them. In fact, I think when a player of the caliber of Mario Williams signs with the Bills, many people around around football react with, well, what is the problem with Mario Williams? <laughs> because why would you go there? This is kind of what Rodney Harrison was saying the other day. So, you know, that's, that's tough uh, for them, and that is what helps, you know, create a disadvantage for them against other teams, but they've really, they're responsible for it. And I think, um, again, if they want, to get good players to want to play for them, then they need to draft better. They need Maybe they need a better stadium or just certain accoutrements that would be more interesting and, and uh, appealing to some of those guys. I think they have a very tough time with that, and I think their reputation around the sport is very poor. 
Well, we have a lot of other things we want to talk to you, so maybe one more thing about the Bills and we'll move on. Uh, next week, the Bills host the Chiefs. It's their home opener. Is this maybe the biggest home opener you can remember in a long time? They Obviously, playing the way they did last week, I think there's a lot of fans out on the ledge, and I think a lot of people are going to want to go into that stadium on Sunday and see more of what they expected to see last week against a team that I think fans think is very beatable. Can you remember a, a home opener that's maybe been as big as this one? We talk all the time about how the Bills have three home games this year in December, and if they want that place to be filled, they're going to have to start winning some games now, you know? Yes. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, what's different about this year is that a lot of people think they're going to be good. They're, they're not really playing for high stakes. They're not uh, defending a title of any kind. So, I mean, it's hard for me to to think of this game as that much bigger than any other game. I mean, really, the only reason there is to say that is that on the outside, and inside too, but the expectations that people create for them are different. Um, you know, like there, there have been a few years through this drought that people thought they might be good, and the first game is, you know, where you, fi- you start to find out. But um, I'm not sure how much bigger this is than other ones. I think the story with this game is that people will be ready to give up on them if they lose it, and it's awfully early for that. The sportscasters are talking with Mike Shope, who is the host of our hometown's local sports radio show, the Midday Drive show here in Buffalo, New York. And we want to get into talking to you a lot about kind of the mechanics and some of the things about that show. You're a guy who has done a lot of different things in radio. One thing you've done is you've done some national radio at ESPN, and obviously you do the local radio here in Buffalo. Do you find either one to be easier than the other in terms of doing the national show or doing the local show? And do you find, obviously I think you have a lot more um, hours maybe logged doing the local show, but is easy is either one maybe more comfortable or more enjoyable for you? Uh, definitely. The, the show I'm doing is much more interesting to do and fun. And maybe also easier, but I really don't think of it like that. Um, it's more interesting to me, and that's all that's all that I really care about. Um, it's not to say that ESPN Radio wouldn't be interesting to a lot of people, but for me, um, I thought, I mean, like, for instance, with hockey, uh, ESPN pays very little attention to hockey, which is a sport that's important to me and to my hometown. So um, I, you know, wasn't as satisfied doing the work because I felt like not only was I not doing any hockey there, but it was almost like a bad. It was almost like a problem to, to mention it. So um, that was that was part of it. But ESPN has a very difficult job. They're trying to find a way to appeal to as many people around the country as possible, if not the world. And of course, people have all kinds of different interests. So um, I. I, I have no idea what goes into the strategy or, or programming ESPN Radio, and I've got nothing to say about that. I just know for me personally, being able to work here is it's more laid back, it's less uh, interview-intensive, which I like, and it's just more fun. You know, we were really curious to ask you this. You guys have a lot of time to fill 
You guys are on the air a lot, five days a week. It's a long show. And I guess one thing we're really curious about is when you sign off of the air at 7 o'clock and you look back on the show and say, wow, that was a really great show, or maybe you say the opposite, wow, that show didn't feel like one of our better ones. What has happened in each of those cases that makes it either a show that really satisfies you or maybe a show that disappoints you a bit? Well, I can think of two things uh, that I really like to have happen. One is when something is really funny, because that's about the best you can ever hope to do. Really, you want to be funny or you want to be interesting and, you know, in an informative way. And when something's really funny and I have such a good group that I'm with that that can happen, and when it does happen, that's something I'll walk out the door thinking about and being proud of. And the other thing is when I have a pretty good day, or at least a good part of a day, uh, being able to say what I'm thinking. Because always that's really the job, is being able to take what is in your head and put it into words. And I I am way on the extreme end, or at least I see myself this way, as far as caring about that goes. I want... I want to get every word right. I want it to sound in, you know, the right kind of uh, rhythm or just, you know, almost like it's music to me. And that's hard to do when you're speaking extemporaneously, but I do the best I can. So if I have a good day, uh, generally, and you don't think about this, you just sort of know it. Um, when you have a good day, when I have a good day thinking about, or, you know, in terms of that, in terms of how well did I articulate my thoughts, that makes me feel good. Uh, as far as what constitutes a bad day, uh, usually for me, it's when I lose my temper, and I don't know if I need to explain that, but that's <laughs> really when I'm not happy. But it's not because I ever blame anybody but myself for that, because it's never anyone else's fault. Is it hard sometimes? Uh, I know you said you like to make everything perfect. I read an article, uh, I believe in the Buffalo News, about you, uh, talking about how you want everything to be perfect. You want it to be efficient, and you want to fill as much of the show with uh, content, like good content, right. that sometimes it right. almost comes off as dismissive rude. or right, rude. Uh, or and if, on the other side of that, you said you love the show to be funny. I think the show is brilliant, and this is the kiss ass portion. Sorry, but uh, I love hmm. the combination. I think Bulldog brings a lot of heart to the show. I think you're the smart one of the smartest guys in radio, and uh, Greg Bauk's hilarious. That said. I love stuff like the stupid animal drafts. I think the fact that you guys will debate why a country was a bad pick over another one is hilarious. But if you read your Facebook comments, the first 30 comments sometimes are never draft anything again. Uh, I don't want to hear any more Joe Buck highlights. Is that aggravating? Because that's the stuff, me as a listener, that's the stuff that I find hilarious, but I'm not one to call. So are you ever aggravated that there's like a very vocal assumably minority that doesn't get it like does that make sense like i feel like no people, i feel like people don't get it and it's like why don't you get this this is hilarious yes it makes sense and i like your question um it it used to bother me more i think most people would say the same when you get older you care about stuff like that less stuff that you can't control the key is knowing that who I'm working for minds or doesn't mind. You know, what What are you doing the job? 
And if you focus on that and if you have confidence that you are doing the job, then you learn, if you don't go in assuming this, that the comments like that are not only irrelevant, it's often the more people say negatively, the better. That's how in show business they tend to see it. If I may call what we do show business, that's how they tend to see it. As long as people are talking, you, you can be loved or hated. Just do not be ignored. So, you know, I, I think it's ironic and kind of funny even that people who give any show a hard time, including ours, really are just helping us. <laughs> so um, I, I don't mind at all, and I, I read it less and less when I started. I think this is probably very common. When people start, they are vain, and they love... You want, one reason why people want to do it is to have people, um, like other you. people talk about them. Right. And, and I won't deny that being true of me, but I'm 40 now, and I don't care as much as I used to and about that. Um, so really, again, it's just that you want uh, to feel that the people that you work for are on board. And we do that. You know, most days, especially with these drafts and things you're, you're citing, um, I know that. So um, that's that's what I care about. I care about how I think I do in a given day, how my coworkers think I did, how my boss thinks I did, how my wife thinks I did, and, you know, whether my mom or dad or maybe a couple of my <laughs> teachers are listening than them. That's, that's about it. The rest of it, say whatever you want. As long as you're listening, we're winning. So in the end, you're more likely to do a show that you like because it, it'll be fun, it'll come across as more pure and... Uh, true, I guess, then you don't, you don't want to pander to fans. Right. No, that's that's a big part of it, and what we choose to do, um, it's more intuitive now than it used to be, but in, in the beginning, that was always stressed. Don't worry about ignoring a topic, you know, in most cases, um, if you don't care about it. Right. Um, take the NBA, for example. There are people who, once in a while, will criticize us or write me and say, well, that, you know, it's usually not this kind, but I say, well, you're making a mistake uh, by not talking about the NBA. And I, I just say to myself, well, I know what I'm doing. Um, the key is that we're talking about what we care about because that comes across. Right. And if it's more, if it's instead uh, just sort of obligatory, then um, people will not listen to it. But there are so many ways now to find out uh, whatever you want to find out to get what you're looking for. Uh, Bulldog and I talking about the Denver Nuggets makes no sense. <laughs> we're, we're much we're much better off talking about what we had for dinner. So um, everybody in radio kind of knows that. People that listen to sports radio and are really sports junkies tend to not be able to figure that out as often. You know, Don talked a little bit about the chemistry that you and the Bulldog and, and even Greg have together on the air. And I think about the Mike and the Mad Dog show, which is maybe the original version of the show that you do, and how much those guys supposedly disliked each other and how maybe they were in the perfect city for that kind of relationship. Do you feel like the relationship that you have with 
you and the Bulldog and even Greg to some extent. And I only know what comes across on the air and, and what I've read. It seems like you guys get along very well and legitimately care about each other. Do you think that's really important in this market? And do you think that's part of what makes the show a success? Uh, generally, yes. They're, you know, similar to what I think you're sort of implying. I think that the, um, the fact that we're a smaller town does sort of allow for that or help us to be less disagreeable, if, if that makes sense. I, I think I think in a bigger city, there's more of a impetus on confrontation. It's not like it's ever laid out a certain way. Whatever happens, happens. But that's in terms of just sort of the on-air functionality of the show and what kinds of whether we're agreeing or disagreeing on a subject. Personally, I think you'll want to at least respect the other person. And I would guess that Mike and Chris Russo did. But, I don't know, I've probably read what you've read. Right. So, um, you know, Chris and I are, are good friends, and we have respect for each other and sort of know each other's dance moves pretty well by now. So um, the subject of our relationship never really comes up uh, between us or um, around us, really, and it's just sort of a a group of guys that um, know each other very well, and we, as I think I might have said in that news piece, um, I look at it like kind of a basketball team, you know, just everybody sort of knows where we're all going to be uh, on a good day at least. So I, 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 would, I would have a very difficult time doing the show if I didn't like the people around me. You know, we mentioned in the in the open that you do do a show on your own on the weekends that focuses on one of your big passions, and that's... Uh, collectibles, and you call it the hobby. And I guess I want I want to ask you a little bit more about that. But I guess the first thing I want to ask you is how does how does that feel in terms of being there and it being your show and you kind of being the man there as opposed and having a hundred percent of the microphone as opposed to when you do this show up in the Bulldog show and it's more of you owning fifty percent of the mic or fifty percent of the airtime. I like it because of when it is and how long it is. It's not the same as working alone in the afternoon, and that, and that happens sometimes. It's, I love the Saturday mornings because I feel that there's no pressure at all. I mean, I could read the phone book, and I wouldn't have a meeting. I, got, I, I think that's probably not literally true, but that's the <laughs> attitude I take in there, you know, that this can, pretty, this can be anything I want. And I've, I've tried to make that show longer for a few years, and I've just never really gotten anywhere, but I, I love the idea of just being able to go in on Saturday and almost almost intentionally not preparing to, just to see like where that goes. Um, so I, I like the fact that it's so low because that sort of, you know, suits that, that mentality. Um, the, the, afternoon, the afternoon show, when he's not there, is hard for me. And I used to work alone every day, but it's it's different. You sort of maybe like running. You you train for certain distances, and when the afternoon show is a solo act, I get I get physically tired, and that is distracting, and it, it causes me to make mistakes. So um, I don't enjoy that very much compare comparatively. But I love the Saturdays because it's one hour, and it's you know very laid back. It's a lot of baseball, which isn't you know, on during the week so much for us. So um, those are some of the reasons I like it. I like doing it. All right, I have kind of a two-part question about the, the hobby in general. Um, 
kind of a broad question. Memorabilia collecting has become, uh, I don't know what the term, maybe a saturated market where back 100 years ago, all you had to do is find, just keep the cards in good shape because nobody had them. Now everybody has all the cards, and the cards that are hard to get cost a ridiculous amount to obtain. So, one, how do you think card collecting compares now as opposed to, I'm a 31-year-old guy, so I... When I collected, even back then, there were a few chase cards, but they were mixed in with the regular packs. I didn't have to buy anything special. Uh, and two, mm-hmm. you have kids now. Would you introduce them to collecting, and how would you do it? Because it's not exactly cheap uh, if you want to have like a nice collection. Yeah, I haven't decided that part yet um, for them. I want them to do what they what they like. And I don't know, I mean, they're not old enough yet for right, me to right. figure that out, um, card collecting. It doesn't have to be expensive. You, you can collect cards and enjoy them in the way I did when I was a little kid without thinking about value at all, and, uh, you know, reading the statistics and getting to know the players and the teams and all that. That's 100% something you can accomplish, you know, irrespective of what price guides say about what they're worth. Okay. And you can buy cheap products that allow for that, so... You know, that, that part of it doesn't have to be a problem. Um, you're, you're the absolute wrong, you're the absolute worst age <laughs> for someone who I might want to talk into collecting because, you know, someone your age might have bought a lot of stuff up in the late 80s. And it's not worth anything. <laughs> you're right. The, the bottom fell out, and what, it's so demoralizing. You don't even get the satisfaction of looking into, you know, into a closet at your mom's house to see if, you know, maybe you have some gems in there. There just isn't. So I, I love the hobby now because you can do anything you want with it. You can you can collect 1992 Donruss and spend $10 and take 10 years doing it. You can collect 1909 tobacco cards and spend, you know, thousands or tens of thousands trying to do that. And that can also be a lifetime sort of project. Uh, because of the Internet, everything's out there and available, whereas pre-internet, you were at the mercy of what was in the store. And this this is more fun. It changes a lot of things about collecting. Um, but I, I love the way it is, and if I decided tonight to sell everything I had, it would take a lot of work and time, but I could do that. And I couldn't have done that without a card store back then. And I could start and go in a totally different direction. So the flexibility and the variety, I think, are great. And I love to talk people into collecting, or try to, because um, I just find it endlessly fun. I know you said you haven't decided what you're going to do with your kids yet, but I, I just want to say one thing about that. And I'm about the same age as Don, and I'm the kid. When I was a kid, I thought for sure the upper deck Michael Jordan card of him playing baseball was going to put <laughs> me through college someday. And there was some disappointment that it didn't, but. When I look back at that phase of my life, the thing that I'm most fond of is the time that I spent doing it with my father and going with him to Bases Loaded or to the Super Flea on a Saturday or just sitting at the table and figuring out what cards we needed to make a set. And, um, you know, those memories I'll take, I think, are way more valuable to me than whatever that Michael Jordan upper deck card could have ever been worth. So I guess when yes. When you're thinking about what you're going to do with your kids, if you want to keep that in mind, I definitely hold that near and dear to my heart, the time that me and my dad spent doing that. 
Mm-hmm. So yes, well, I mean, I I love the hobby, and no doubt my my son is already aware of that. Um, but whether or not it turns into something that he wants to do with me, uh, will be you know we'll, we'll have to see what what that what that turns into. But I would love for it to happen. The sportscasters are here with Mike Shope. We're finishing up. Uh, you can find Mike on Twitter. He's at Shope Talk S C H O P P T A L K, and of course you can hear him. If you're in Buffalo or really anywhere, uh, you, if you go onto the website, www.wgr550.com, you can listen really from anywhere in the world as far as I know. Or if you're in Buffalo, you can find them. And you probably don't need me to tell you this on WGR550. Uh, uh, just We just kind of wanted to finish up with a few kind of smaller, silly things. One being uh, we mentioned that you're a Settlers of Catan fan, and my partner loves to email you about seafarers and uh, add-ons and things mm-hmm. like that in Catan. And we're wondering, is it Catan still number one for you? Have you mixed in any other board games that maybe we should start playing as well? My time is more uh, is less mine, I guess. I've had <laughs> less time to play when my wife's sister and her husband would visit my wife and me um, all the time, when neither of us had kids, we would play these games constantly. Carcassonne, yep. and Sellers, and Cities and Nights, and all these different games. Usually, my brother-in-law would be the guy who discovered them, and then we would we would play them through him. But now it's just, you know, there's not enough time. I, I have the app for Sellers, and if I'm looking to kill half an hour or something, I'll use that. Ticket to Ride is kind of fun. Uh, but I'm not really up to speed on any of the new games. Those are pretty much all that I know, the ones I mentioned. Well, you know, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciated it. And there's so much more we'd like to talk to you about that we hope you'd be interested in doing it again sometime. But before we let you go, we absolutely have to ask you if you have any questions for us. <laughs> yeah, who, who's going to hear this? Well, we post it on our website, and it's on Stitcher, and it's also on iTunes, and it runs on a website based out of Rochester called ProPlayerInsiders.com that's partially owned by the NFLPA, and we get a good following mm-hmm. from them. Steve's mom will definitely My hear mom it. will definitely, yeah, hear it, as well as Don's dad, who's yep. a big fan. And, um, and we have a separate show that we do for Kerry J. Byrne from Sports Illustrated. He has a website called Football Nation, and that show is uh, foot- it focuses only on football, and we're building an audience there that I think is now discovering the other show as well. So uh, we're, we're, we're doing our best to build the audience. But Oh, and hopefully you know your fans will at least stop by and check this one out, maybe because you retweet or tweet that you were here. For sure. Once you said you had Jane Levy, I... I was um, in. Oh yeah, so, Jane um, is de- Jane is uh, she's great and she's great to us. Very very kind and has been on I think four or five times now. The first time we had her on, we had, one thing we do that seems to be pretty popular is we have a book club, and uh, it was her Mickey Mantle book that we featured one month, and she came on and she's been on anytime I've asked her since, and she's great. She's yes, very very well, kind. The last boy, it's excellent. Yeah. Well, good. I was uh, I was I'm flattered to have been invited, and I. Um, I wish you both the best. I, I, I admire your, uh, your industriousness. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mike. We appreciate it.
All right, I want to throw out a special thank you to Mike Shope from WGR 55 here in Buffalo for being on the show. Also want to thank Dan Wolken for being on the podcast and Pablo S. Torrey. Don't forget our other podcast, www.footballnation.com, features Don Banks from Sports Illustrated and sportsillustrated.com this week. Also, don't forget you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email us, the sportscasters at gmail.com, our blogs, the sportscasters.blogspot.com, and the sportscasters.tumblr.com. And you can all just find us on our website, www.sports-casters.com. One last piece of business for today, pick four, and we both got off to a slow start to the football season, me especially, going one and three. Uh, Don and I, we talk about this, how there's always that one football game, it seems like. It's almost like we should just be doing a lock of the week. Yeah. Because we'd be great we like, at that. We like one game or two right. games. Right. I loved Chargers minus one over the Raiders, and I had that one in the bag all night. Chargers won 24-14. That was my only win. I had the Giants minus four. I was on the side of history there yeah. th- thinking that they would hold up like the rest of the champions. They lost to the Cowboys 24-17. And I tried to go the Arrowhead route with Chiefs plus three. Atlanta was too good. Pulled away in the second half. They won that one 40-24. And I had Brady, Breeze, Stafford, and Rodgers over 12 touchdowns. They only got eight. Uh, Stafford really hurt me. He only had yeah. one. Breeze, I think, was the only one of them who had three. So, and I needed them all to have at least that. Yeah, I also missed on the Giants. Yep, you missed on the Giants, and your other loss was your bold prediction, Bills Ooh. minus six over the Jets. Uh, yeah, if you want to hear him. I'm sure Mike, which we haven't recorded the interview yet, but I'm sure he uh, rants and raves a little bit about it too. But if you want to hear me rant about it, check out the other podcast on Football Nation. Yeah, the Bills lost that one, 48-24. Your wins... And it wasn't that close for people that didn't watch it. It wasn't as close as 48-24, as bad as that sounds. Your wins were Broncos minus one over the Steelers, 31-19. And the game you love, New England minus six over Tennessee. You had that all day. Yeah, not enough points. 24-13. Or 34-13, excuse me. All right, the game of the week this week, we're going to go with Monday Night Football. uh, uh, Falcons at the Broncos. Fun game. Yeah, interesting game. Falcons look like a team. I mean, they've been a good team, but maybe a team even a little bit on the rise, a little bit more wide open with Julio Jones there and really integrated into that offense now with a full off season and a full regular season. Uh, They're a three-point favorite on the road. I'm going to take the home team in the Broncos and Peyton. And I'm going to make the Falcons uh, show it to me against maybe a, a little bit better team than Kansas City. I had no idea until right now who I was going to pick. And I think for the fun of it, I'm going to take the Falcons. I, I just don't know. I could see I could see it going either way. I could see sure. waking up on Tuesday and saying, you know, Peyton struggled a little bit. Maybe he was a little fatigued after the emotion of the first week. Maybe there was a little letdown there. Or I could see waking up and just saying maybe the Falcons aren't as good as they showed against the Chiefs. Maybe the Broncos are really the Super Bowl team that Peter King thinks they are, among some others. But I'll go with the Falcons. I'll lay the points, and I'll see what happens. Yeah, I guess my thought is I'm more impressed by the Broncos' win than the Falcons' win, based on their opponent. I know the Falcons, the Falcons can only play who's on their schedule, so it's a little bit hard to knock them for that. They did beat the snot out of Kansas City. All right, my host choice this week. I'm going to take the Cowboys at the Seahawks. The Cowboys are on the road against the Seahawks, but again, the Seahawks didn't look impressive in a game where they knocked Arizona's starting quarterback out. Arizona's not exactly a world beater. 
and the Cowboys did look impressive on the road beating the world champs. So I'll take I'll lay three points, and I'll take the Cowboys Sunday at 4 o'clock. I'm going to do something I don't like to do a lot, and that's lay points on the road. But I'm I'm going to say that the Saints are a lot better than the, they showed on Sunday. I've been on the side of them all off season, and it seems like in the Peyton era, and I know Peyton isn't there, but in the Peyton Breeze era, maybe more appropriately, when they've laid eggs like they did last week, they bounce back and they bounce back angrily. They play the Panthers, who I don't think are that great. They didn't look very good in Tampa Bay last week. Nope. It's only three points, so I'm going to take the risk and be a little bit of a homer and say the Saints beat the Panthers by more than three on Sunday at 1 o'clock on Fox. My next two picks, my worldwide leader and my bold prediction, kind of fall under the same logic where teams that underperform bounce back. Uh, Good teams do that, and I think the Packers are a good team. They're at home to the Bears Thursday night at 820. I know they're going to be missing Greg Jennings, but they're a six-point dog right now. I think they go out and look to make a statement. They played maybe the best defense in the league and still managed to put up some points and numbers. The Bears are not the best defense in the league. And I don't I just don't the Bears offense is much improved. I just don't know that they can keep pace with the Packers. So I'll lay six points at home in Lambeau. I love the Packers too. I got the same worldwide leader. I think that they're another team that's gonna just bounce back. I think Aaron Rodgers is pissed. I think that that offense is going to click a little bit better, get off to a better start. I think it's an extra week for Cedric Benson to integrate himself into the offense and take a little pressure off of the passing game. I love the Packers this week too. And my bold prediction this week, it goes right along with your host choice. I'm going to take the Saints minus three, and I'm going to triple that. I'm going to take the Saints minus nine. Uh, I know the logic here kind of could be said for both teams. They both had bad losses. I just think the Saints are a better team with a better quarterback. And even though they're going on the road, I'll lay nine points on the road at the Panthers. They're they're just too good. I think they'll look to make a statement that this isn't because of uh, Bounty Gate or Peyton or anything like that. They're going to go out there and they're gonna they're gonna beat the Panthers. And the Panthers are gonna be in a hole for a team that looked like they were up on an up and coming team. They could be zero and two in the division. After two weeks. Right. So, I mean, I guess that would give them more to fight for, too. But the Saints don't want to go and win their division fall to 0-2 either. That game's 1 o'clock on Fox on Sunday. Interesting stat. I'll give you a, my stat of the week. I don't know if I'll do this every week, but I found came across an interesting one. The Saints, week one, had 32 yards rushing. Ouch. Carolina, week one, had 10 yards rushing. Ouch. So, for stat nerds or fantasy nerds out there, People loved D'Angelo Williams week one because yes. Jonathan Stewart was out. You had to be pissed. There might not have been a bigger disappointment in any fantasy player, unless you started like the Bills defense, uh, than D'Angelo Williams. Ten yards rushing. Ouch. I hate, I hate from a fantasy sense, ever being a part of the Panthers' backfield. <laughs> yeah. It drives me nuts. My bold prediction this week, I hated the Eagles last week. I see nothing from them. Yeah. I see no reason... For them to be three-point favorites. I know they're at home against the Ravens. But the Ravens look like a Super Bowl team, maybe. Sure. They looked awesome. If Flacco was going to play like that. And the Eagles looked horrible. I love this line. So what I'm going to do is screw taking the points. I'll lay the three points. And I'm going to take the Ravens over the Eagles in Philadelphia Sunday at 1 o'clock on CBS. Wow, I didn't even see it. They're laying points after that game, huh? Yeah, the Eagles are a favorite, a three-point wow. favorite at home against the Ravens. I think that that 
is maybe Las Vegas telling us not to overreact. Maybe. But I seen both of those teams play quite a bit week one, Did and you, I thought the Eagles were bad. I haven't been. Be, I was not on board with the Eagles last year when there was all the dream, dream team stuff. Team, yeah. I thought they were overrated then. I still think they're overrated. I think Michael Vick is hurt. I don't think he's any good. I think he's getting closer and closer to washed up. I was going to say real quick, I mean, to talk about this, we don't usually get into stuff in this part of the show, but I watched a lot of that game, and I know they're trying to keep him healthy. but They've taken away his instincts. Yeah, he, he looks too much like a pocket passer, just not a good pocket passer. He was okay at it two years ago. But they also let him run around like a crazy man when guys like Matthew Barry were declaring him the first right. overall That's what fantasy he needs pick. to do to be effective. Absolutely. If he's going to get hurt, this is kind of like my Strasburg argument a little bit. If he's going to get hurt doing what he does, he gets hurt doing what he does. I mean, if you sit him and then he gets hurt, or if you, in Vic's case, handcuff him by not letting him run, you're going to win lousy, boring games against Cleveland, and you're going to struggle all year long. they got to let him go. I mean... If he's hurt, and that's the reason he's not running around and they're in trouble, if he's not hurt, then hopefully they uncork him a little bit because and that they, game was ugly. It seems like they never use McCoy enough. No. I mean, how, I don't have the stat the of how Rice many passes to too. runs, but it's just not enough. And I just – I was all over this. Cleveland's I, an okay defense. I just think the Ravens are a much, much better oh, yeah. team than the Eagles. Yeah, I agree. So, All right. Thank you for listening today. Thanks again to our guests. Don't forget to check us out on Football Nation, www.footballnation.com. we got Don Banks this week. Don, you can cue the hip. All right.